You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Ladies and gentlemen, an important announcement from the management of this theater. Shut up and listen! If you like Deep Throat and Singing in the Rain, you're gonna love Blonde Ambition, the most important American film since Earthquake. Can two no-talent broads take Coyote Fang, Wyoming by storm and make it to the top? They sing, they dance, they tap their tits off. The Kane sisters bring new meaning to the words bad taste. Starring in stag films, uh, I mean uh, specialized art films, our heroines perfect their craft in a series of cinematic gems. Culminating in the wreck of an American classic, sugar and candy turn GWTW into a mass of tits and ass. The Yankees are coming! The Yankees are coming! Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Blonde Ambition stars from England, Susie Mandel, and Dory Devon, plus from America, Wade Parker and George Payne. And others too fabulous to mention. See Beauty Beyond Belief. A nice extravaganza that would stupefy Sonia Henny. Thrilled to erotic interludes that arouse the imagination and defy description. And the censor! Only a movie as outrageous as Blonde Ambition could take you from the dignity of the Buckingham Estate to a drag ball at the notorious Club Pits. Blonde Ambition is a class act. Blonde Ambition is a riot. Step by step up the ladder to success. Nothing can bar the Kane sisters from their ultimate goal. The top at last. Married to millionaires and starring in their very own nightclub, the girls prove that hard work and clean living will get you absolutely nowhere. True, cafe society was not prepared for their unorthodox rise to stardom. But if they can't take a joke, fuck them. Long Ambition, the movie. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. 
Also joining us in the booth is Ms. April Hall of the Rialto Report. Oh, hi there. I'm excited for this one. We continue our March through March with a look at the adult classic Blonde Ambition. Released in 1981, the film was years in the making. It stars Susie Mandel and Dory Devon as Sugar and Candy Cane, sisters who have a song and dance act in a podunked town. One fateful evening, they encounter the dashing Stephen Carlyle III, played by Eric Edwards, a prince of sorts who carries not a glass slipper, but a valuable jewel, and, wouldn't you know it, a duplicate of a worthless replica owned by the Kane sisters. I don't think I need to say it, but wackiness ensues. We will be spoiling the film as we go along, so if you don't want anything ruined, turn off the podcast and come back after you've watched Blonde Ambition. We will still be here. So, Heather, when was the first time you saw the film, and what did you think? I first saw the film in, I want to say, 2011. And, of course, I went into it already being very familiar with the Amaro Brothers, because I'm a huge Michael Finlay fan. And so I knew about kind of their sexploitation background with films like like The Lusting Hours and, and Bacchanal. And I, I remember seeing a trailer. I saw the trailer before I ever saw the film. And I was like, oh, my God, because, you know, it says, if you like Deep Throat and Singing in the Rain, then Blonde Ambition is for you. And I was like, hell to the yes, I must watch it. And I was not disappointed. This film is an absolute gem, and I won't go into it too much because I know we're about to discuss it, but I absolutely loved it. And April, how about yourself? It's probably been about 20 plus years since I first saw Blonde Ambition, and I remember I saw it before I met John, and once I saw it, I had to meet John, um, and it really is the thing that made me want to write John's book with him, which we just put out last year. His book is American Ecstasy. And, you know, as I got to know John, that film is such a perfect distillation of who John is. You know, this gay guy weaned on big Hollywood musicals who loved TV and film and wound up in porn kind of by mistake because that was the only way he could make movies. And I just loved it because it is the farthest thing from erotic. So it just tickled me pink to think about somebody who was like, ooh, good, I'm going to watch this film and get off. And then you... Turn it on and it's like, ba, 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 ba. That opening music is incredible. And that's totally like when I talked to it, the guy who composed the music for the opening of every projection booth since 2020, I was like, I want it to be like big music from trailers, like that kind of thing. And that's the music that is like that. Da, 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 da. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's wonderful. And I love the, the credits coming in from either side. And then you've got that blue velvet background. You know, I just rewatched How to Marry a Millionaire today. And I'm like, okay, that's where they got that blue background from with uh, all the names over it. It's just so glitzy and glamorous. And yet not at the same time. Uh, I love the voiceover that we have introducing us to all of this. And, I don't think it's diegetic. I don't think it's anybody that we know from the movie. I think it's just this kind of godlike narrator who is taking us in and telling us the story of the Kane sisters and how they went from this little podunk town in what Coyote Fang, Wyoming at the Tumbleweed Saloon all the way to Shea Gosh and how they conquered the world. That voiceover was actually done by J.J. Coyle, who had been on the adult film scene. Like, like, let's take a step back for a second. The thing that makes me giggle and makes my head spin is the fact that all of these guys who are working on these heterosexual 
sex films in the 70s were all gay, you know? So you have John, you have, you know, Chris Covino is John Christopher. You have Chuck Vincent, you have JJ Coyle. You have all these guys. They're hanging out at the Big Spender, which is their local watering hole. They love each other. They go there. It's their office. It's their social club. And these guys are the ones who made these heterosexual sex films. So anyway, the voiceover, JJ Coyle, is one of that group from The Big Spender. And he was from Gloucester, which was John's hometown. I know that also gay, of course, and was a pretty successful playwright in his own right. And I remember asking John about sort of why his he was in there doing that. And he said, no, no, that's how LaRue had written the script in part, but JJ brought his own special style to it, which is fantastic. I don't know if all of these gentlemen were gay, but the guys who are there at their big Broadway show that we see a little bit of before we go into the past, all of these guys wearing the tuxedo pants, the tuxedo vest, no shirt, they've all, well, not all of them, but so many of them have that, like, let's say pride mustache going on. It's just, it's wonderful. I love that they just have like that look to each and every one of the uh, more eye-catching dancers. Oh, and they have such verve. Like, I just love the, the applause. They just, they just come out. And I know it has absolutely no tie, but it kind of reminded me as a kid, I'd grow up watching SCTV and they had the Jewel Hallmeyer dancers. <laughs> and I don't know. <laughs> Because I love Jewel Hallmark. (laughs) And he had a great mustache. So maybe that's, you know, a little, little nice memory from my childhood. But yeah, this film is just like, it's like a, like a plum in, in living cinematic form. Like, it's just so much fun. It's such a love letter. It really is. And those dancers, you know, who are there and then there again at the end, they were actual Broadway dancers. Bob Fosse's first wife choreographed the dancing in this film, which is amazing. Marianne Ma- uh, Niles is her name. And so she came in. I think she was, she's the name Rosetta Stone for the film. I'm pretty sure. So anyway, those dancers that she's in there, you know, to your question, Mike, are they gay or not? Let's not maybe stereotype about Broadway, but if I had to guess, I would say yes. Um, but the reason they're so amazing and performative and like just fantastic to look at is because they were professionals. Like this was another level for John. This was the biggest budget him and Lem had had to make a film and they were going to take full advantage of that. Well, and it wasn't like they had all the budget at once too, right? They worked through this and it took so many years for them to finish this film. I think they said they started in 77. 76 started pre-production. Well, that's a whole story we can get into about the backer of the film because it was this, it's Shell Nielsen who had backed their first film. And, oh, there's a backstory there we can get to if we want to. But, uh, yeah, he came in strong with the money, enough to do sort of the pre-production production. You know, in the pre-production, John and Lem went to London to actually shoot exteriors and to cast for the film. So, I mean, this is like a real deal. Like, you don't think about it. New York sex films like that, right? Like going off to international locations to shoot. Like this was not the usual, but the budget they had for this, I think was about $30,000. So it shall have been so happy with the f- return he got from Every Inch a Lady, which was the previous film he'd made with the Amira brothers for, I think about 25K. 
you know, with Darby Lloyd Reigns and Harry Reams that he even upped the production budget for this one. So yeah, it started out strong, but to your point, Mike, I'm sure we'll talk about this later. It started to trickle and hence the long tail of this film. I mean, there is a pretty good amount of sex and the sex that there is in here. Pretty effective, I would say. Definitely, it's much more motivated. Last week, we spoke about Little Orphan Dusty, where it was kind of more that we're looking for any excuse to have sex. Next week, we're talking about New Wave Hookers, where it's basically the story is very minimal, let's say. It's a strong story, but a minimal story. But with this, I mean, it is so much more about the things that happen in between the sex scenes, though those sex scenes are very motivated. Like the even the first sex scene that we have with the cowboy who's a boyfriend of one of the Kane sisters. And I love that throughout this entire film, and I'm going to keep bringing this up, that we have all this cross-cutting. And we've got cross-cutting between those two having sex, the other sister on the phone with the manager, and then I want to say, oh, and then the manager himself, the, that they're having this conversation, and then that the dialogue will speak from one scene to another, even though they're not having a conversation. It's really clever and very well written, and just, of course, filled with double entendres. And that's the thing for this whole film, the way that the Merrill brothers had the story, and then the Watts wrote it. You get double entendres like crazy, and I really like how this movie has such a great sense of humor. It's so quotable. Like, there's my my favorite was that Sugar at one point says, "A cock a day keeps the hornies away." (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I live by that, don't you, Heather? (laughs) I know. I mean, it's it's sound advice. I mean, really. And hearing it because Susie Mandel is so adorable. She's so, so, I mean, both of them, because Dory Devon is, I mean, the casting is just pitch perfect. Like, they, you love these girls, and they're so funny and so great. And, but Susie will just, she's just so, so, so adorable and almost like, ch- um, ch- cheru- I'm going <laughs> to, cherubic. 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 There we go. <laughs> but yet, so, so just deliciously tarty. Like, she's just cock mad. And I love it. These girls, and Dory Devon, like, I've, like researching like that she you know has this like professional stage background which i mean as we all as i know the three of us know i mean so many people and adults in this time period a lot of them did kind of dispelling sort of the common mainstream stereotype about people and adult and she brings i mean there's tap dancing in this film (laughs) it's an amiro brothers film of course there's going to be tap dancing I love what you said, Heather, because it's like, even though the casting feels so perfect, so many of these people were not the first people that John and Lem wanted, right? So Dory Devon wasn't the first one. It was Heather Dealey, right, that they found in the UK who was fighting with her boyfriend. So they were like, forget that. Then they came back and they wanted to get Gloria Leonard. And Gloria Leonard was all booked up. So Dory Devon was third choice for this. And yet... She is so absolutely perfect. And, you know, same thing with the Jamie Gillis role, right? He 
to me. I cannot imagine anybody playing that better than him, this sort of swishy yet understated, you know, kind of role. But they wanted it to be Harry Reams, and Harry just wanted too much money. And they were like, come on, Harry, for old times. We're friends. We've worked together. And Harry was like, nah, you know, I'm not doing it for the money. And Jamie, who would always say, like, he would have done any sex film for free, so he laughed when people paid him. But I, probably this is the only, like, sex film that Jamie doesn't have sex in. It's like, could you imagine putting Jamie Gillis in an adult film and not having him, him have sex? It's kind of a miracle. But, like, to your point, like, even though these people were not first choice, to me, they feel so perfect. I don't know about you, but, like, anytime Jamie Gillis pops up in anything, I immediately get, like, excited. Like, I, I will, like, exclaim, like, a little beetle maniac. I'm like, oh, my God, it's Jamie Gillis, like that. I mean, it, he's so funny. And I, that's the thing, too. I think a lot of people tend to associate him with darker roles. And, and of course, he's he's brilliant in everything. And he could be, like, the scariest person in a movie. But he's he's so funny. He's such a natural, like, comedian. And he gets to shine. Even though it's a small role, like, he he cracks me up here. Well, that's the thing is everybody in this movie, I mean, especially our main cast, they can just really knock it out of the park. When you talk about adult films, like this movie doesn't have Veronica Hart, who I still think is probably the best actress who was also in adult films. But I mean, Susie, Eric Edwards, Jamie Gillis, Arbola, Dory Devin, Wade Nichols, all of these folks can carry a scene and just them interacting with each other is fantastic. And though Jamie doesn't really interact with very many people, and I love that it just looks, I mean, come on, it looks like they shot that in a day because it's just if uh, maybe an afternoon, right? No, it is a day. It was a very long day. John told me in excruciating detail about that, how setting that up, you know, they got there at the crack of dawn and then just doing everybody's hair, getting the props set up, everything that needed to be done. Because think about it, it is a huge scene and there's a big cast. I mean, tying feathers onto chickens, you know, like things like this that you would, these things all take time, you know, however silly they may seem. And so I think they started actually getting down to filming um, early afternoon, John said, and they went well into the late hours to try to get it done because, you know, setting that up was was costly and expensive. But like my that scene, like it's got everything in it. It's got John's like the whole film might have been an excuse for John to get that backdrop painted for that scene because he always wanted one of those Hollywood backdrop paintings. He got it. It was painted by this guy in Boston. He sent him a photo. It was shipped. It was, it hung in their offices afterwards forever. And I think the whole thing was just staged around it. But if you think about even the rocket that goes across on the little line and all just the hysterical props and, and, and then when I just, you know, the people you don't see in the scene who seem to have their fingerprints all over it, like Roberta Finley, you know, Heather, you were saying you love the Finleys. Like it cracks me up to think about Roberta. You know, Roberta of, you know, the Flesh Trilogy, black and white, gray, somber, dark, you know, and then you have John Amiro, like, bright colors, big music, more lights. And he said, like, they would just fight over the light meter all day because Roberta would want to be toning it down. And John would be like, brighten it up, brighten it up. That scene is a piece of gold. Like, when I really, when I die, if y'all can just play that at my funeral and have the soundtrack in the background, like, I will be thrilled. 
And that backdrop, I mean, it's exquisite. I mean, just right down to like the Gone with the Wind type scrolling font title over it and just the rows of Southern Bells, just an assorted JB barking out, you know, doggy like that. And, just like <laughs> and this is, is that like an like old Susanna? Being played at one point like this instrumental version of Old Susanna while this all this chaotic Southern Civil War sex is going on. I should have been more clear when I was talking to the stuff with Jamie. I mean, yes, he interacts with the cast in the early part of that sequence. So even to set it up, I should probably say that. So the girls are in Coyote Fang. They call their manager. Their manager wants them to send him a hundred bucks. They, uh, he wants them to come out to New York because there's a new club and he does one of those looking around the room kind of things. It's called crackers where I've got you this great gig. Uh, so he's a total piece of shit. And manages to get them out but luckily they happen upon the aforementioned eric edwards and arbola that is stephen carlisle the third and his valet eric and they are for some reason they're in coyote fang and that's right because they are there to retrieve the buckingham brooch which was thrown down a mine years and years before and it is family heirloom priceless family heirloom and they are there and wouldn't you know that Susie has an exact copy that she bought from a quote gypsy unquote at a carnival years before and yeah like I said wackiness is sure to ensue from that but that comes much later in the plot but for here it is hey let's take these beautiful women with us to New York City because we're stopping there on our way back to England and even give them a place to stay at his place in New York and I'm surprised we didn't get more fish out of water with these two rubes coming out from Coyote Fang to New York. I really thought we were going to get that, but instead they actually land a job at this, uh, well, Susie lands a job at this Gone with the Wind or GTTW. Uh, <laughs> they never say it. GTTW um, kind of recreation that uh, Jamie Gillis is directing. But what I should have said is that so much of his role is just him standing in a one shot or a two shot screaming directions. So it's like, come on, like Harry Reem's not wanting to just stand there and shout directions for it, uh, you know, a couple hours as they shot that. Whatever. He does a fantastic job. He's a, Jamie is wonderful. And I, that's the only thing that I wish this movie had more of was him. I kind of wish he maybe became their mentor, but. After Susie delivers her line at the totally wrong time. But, you know, we were talking last week about orgies, and this is basically they're having an orgy on stage, but I love it. And I love the way that they're cutting back and forth and that the uh, that Lemomero's um, editing really helps it so that they all climax at the exact same time. It's wonderful. Talk about uh, a shot for the ages or many shots, I should say, for the ages. You mean that wasn't all real time? I'm shocked. I know, right? Mike, you glossed over some amazing things. Like the first thing I remember when I saw Blind Ambition and I was looking at the opening scene, I was looking, I was like, why does that look so familiar? And then I talked to John and he was like, oh, that's CBGB's. And I was like, what? I was like, to me, it blew my little mind, the idea that 
the same club that I went to 10 years after they filmed there to go see some of my favorite punk bands was being used 10 years prior <laughs> to film this scene, you know, so they're set up in there. And, you know, even the bit part players, Heather, like you were saying before, how well cast everybody is, like anytime I can see Erica Eaton do anything, it just brings a smile across my face. You know, she's there as the waitress, you know, serving buffalo piss to everybody. Like these are just the amazing amazing moments that get crammed into a film like this, you know, and all those locations have so much meaning. The apartment that the sisters are staying in, that's Walter Sears' real apartment, who was Roberta Finley's boyfriend, I guess, by that point, or close to being. Well, I guess it wouldn't have been her boyfriend yet, because Richie Weigel, that's Blonde Ambition is the film where John met Richie Weigel, who he'd go on to be good friends with. Richie was the sound mixer. And I'm pretty sure Roberta was dating him then. So maybe it was a little double duty. I'm not going to tell tales out of school. That is Walter Sears kick butt apartment. Like these locations were amazing. I guess that's, you know, a little budget goes a long way. When I found that out about CBGBs, and for the record, I am so jealous you got to go to shows there, because that was always like my dream. I got into punk as a teenager, and I would read about CBGBs, and I'd be like, oh my god. Of course, you know, spoiler, there were no like CBGB equivalents in Springdale, Arkansas. Dodgy redneck bars, though, but alas, no. Uh, <laughs> yeah, much more like the, uh, the, the tumbleweed saloon. <laughs> oh my gosh. And the lighting. Holy hell, the lighting in this film, like, I love how candy colored everything like they really like did such a gorgeous job on evoking that just sort of just vibrancy that old Hollywood films have. There's almost nobody who is more film, more cinema in my mind than John. Like John was in love with film from day one. Like he's more steeped in film than Steven Spielberg, right? Like aside from the fact that he grew up, you know, gay kid in Gloucester, kind of escaping to Hollywood in his mind between, you know, his attempts to make his own films. He was managing cinemas. He was working on everybody else's set. So, you know, he basically did everything on a film set except probably perform sex, right? He was director, he was producer, he was cinematographer, he was lighting, he was a prop master, you know, he was certainly an actor, his sound, he worked for the distributors. So this, like, the reason why this looks so good is not by accident in my mind, you know, and I'm not saying that these films are like the best thing that was ever made, though Time Out did say this was the second best adult film ever made a few years ago. I did pick up on that. But it's still, this is made by a filmmaker who was working with some real constraints to try to do something that is fun. I really appreciate having like an adult film where the sex scenes don't go on too long because I mean there there are some films you're watching like the you're like oh this is a really this is a really good film and then it gets the sex and then it gets to the sex and then like oh okay come on dude you can (laughs) wrap it up you know like it it can go you know it can get a little you know really repetitive if it's not like a well constructed and well edited thing but then again I mean this is definitely a case where this I think this is definitely a great movie that just happens to kind of have sex it's very saucy but it's kind of like what you were saying earlier April and you know so many of my favorite films of this era tend to be the films where it's like yeah if you're if you're going in with a raincoat you know and a, and a hat you're gonna leave completely with a clean coat and a clean hat unless you get off on puns I'm sure there's a fetish for that <laughs> But it's true, like the sex is humorous, right, Mike? It's funny. 
Well, even when they're having sex on the plane, again, they're doing the smart thing of cross-cutting between the sisters having sex. So it's not just one sex scene. And the two sex scenes are very different in the way that they're shot and the way that they're even having sex. Like, I think it's much more of like a blowjob for um, sugar and it's mm. much more of a uh, just kind of straight sex with uh, candy. So it just it's nice that they have that variety going back and forth. And again, yes, yeah, so many freaking puns. Is just amazing, especially the lead up to the sex and all of the sugars talking with Eric, or you know, I should say Arbola. It's so confusing having Eric, <laughs> Eric Edwards, and Arbola, and then mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> and there's again, he's like, oh, tell me about this, and it's of course all double entendres for penises, and then she's she was taking a class in Oriental cooking. Oh, I love to eat. Tell me your favorite recipe. Oh, steak and lychee nuts, Fu Manchu. How'd you make it? Well, you take your meat and you pound it. It's hilarious the way that they go about this. And the more, the most unusual sex scene for me, even more than the, uh, W, sorry, GWTW stuff (laughs) is the shower masturbation scene (laughs) with Dory Devon and then Eric Edwards and just how freaking psychedelic it is. I love the way that they shoot this with this crazy lens that doubles, triples, quadruples people. It's, wild and wonderful stuff to look at. John told me a lot about building that shower. They built it in their office. It's like a hose coming over the wall. So like they're filming it and there's like flooding all over the floor. They can't film like film it fast enough because like water is getting everywhere. And it's just another example of how they made, made it work because, you know, they shot most of the sex scenes in their offices. You know, a few were, you know, of the follow-on inserts that Larry shot. They did those at Larry's studio, I think, but uh, the majority was done in John's office. So, yeah, so that psychedelic stuff was all happening while somebody was probably, like, on the floor with towels, Mike, like, (laughs) hoping the office didn't flood. That wallpaper, though. Oh, yeah, it's everything. When you said that, Mike, about, you know, how they mixed up the sex, you know, to make it a little more interesting, I was thinking to myself, I wonder how much that had to do with the fact that, you know, obviously, Dory Devon was performing her own sex, but Susie wasn't. There was a body double who I like, to this day, I get so mad at John that he can't remember who that was. And I'm always like trying to recognize her face and figure out who it is. But I wonder how much it had to do that. And Also, I'm really interested in both of your takes on this idea that, you know, Susie from the beginning was like, yeah, you can set me up for anything. Like, I won't perform the explicit sex, but I have no problem with people thinking that I perform the explicit sex. I think it's so unusual because especially, I mean, well, even now, I mean, there's always that danger of like, if you're quote unquote, and I hate this word, but like a legitimate, you know, or in the straight world, like actress, the minute you do hardcore, it's like you are branded. And Susie, I mean, she was on Benny Hill. She was in a number of like softcore British sex comedies. She was in Come Play With Me with Mary Millington, who definitely had no problem doing hardcore. R.I.P. Mary. But uh so I think it was like really, really fascinating and really bold. And she's such a trooper because you can tell that like she you know, she stayed around long enough to kind of mime and like you see her her head going down with her mouth open towards 
Arbola's lap, which, by the way, Mike, the best pun in that was after he ejaculates and he says, serve six. The cooking, <laughs> thank you. I could not the remember what he was talking and about. And it is like a prodigious... Chicken Kiev, was it? And it was a prodigious load, so it made the pun even better. Like, it was... <laughs> but uh, I think it was, like, it's fascinating. Like, good for Susie. What a trooper. You know, I mean, I just adore her in this. She's just wonder. I can't imagine, I mean, anybody else doing this film, even though, obviously, she wasn't the first. It is so unusual, this taboo... I mean, we can break you know our discussion into so much when we're talking about this but as you're mentioning this whole thing of like actresses distancing themselves from sex and displaying their body the whole idea of a body double which we talked about on the episode with that title but then you get movies like um i can't even remember which one it was i think it might have been the first machete film where jessica alba in that movie is quote-unquote naked but it's it's either her face on another actress's body put there digitally, or it's like digital nudity. And it's like, why? <laughs> why? It's like, it's such this weird thing of like, I don't want to show myself or be shown naked, but yet it looks 100% legitimate. I'm, it's like you go through, you jump through all of these hoops in order to make it appear like you are naked in a film or like the director is making you look naked in a film. And then, yeah, it's, it's just bizarre. But yeah, I, I, I liked that she was, you know, she had her limits, I guess. Uh, but my God, some of those things like the Arbola scene, it's like that poor woman wearing that awful, awful wig. <laughs> <laughs> It's so interesting because, you know, later on, she went on to marry Stan Margolis, Susie did. But this was, you know, right around the time that Blonde was released, not the time it was being made. So it's like when I think about why somebody would be like fine for everybody to think that they had sex as long as they're not performing it. Like, first of all, to your point, Mike, more power to you. Whatever is going to make you comfortable, that's what's important at the end of the day. But when I think about sort of the mathematics of it in my head, you know, it's sort of like why it's like, okay, did she do that for herself? You know, did she do that so she could have like plausible deniability if she went to a, you know, director and they said, ah, but you made hardcore, but aha, uh -huh, I really didn't, you know, like what, what was that? Cause it really, the majority of people are going to walk away thinking, that she did those things, even though clearly, like, that body double isn't perfect. That wig, I was like, couldn't you make it a little blonder, John? I found something this morning on, now, mileage is obviously going to vary, but uh, on the Internet Adult Film Database, they are saying that, according to, like, a Facebook post, that the body double is Debbie Revenge. That's weird. I'm trying to figure out if that timing works. I guess it could. Maybe. I know. I thought that was odd, too, because I was like, okay, well, I know she, yeah, I mean, she was in, she did do it all. She was in Babylon Pink. It was part of the punk scene. I mean, she's around. We could certainly ask her. Mike, you got to extend the podcast and call her to find out. Now I'm totally going to hit her up and ask her. That's a great little tidbit. You mentioned the producer, uh, Shell Nielsen, and he does have a cameo in this, which I really appreciated. <laughs> which Bend over. <laughs> it kind of recycles one of my favorite jokes from uh, Truffaut's Shoot the Piano Player, where it's a guy on the phone saying, my, may my mother drop dead if I'm lying to you. And then you get the quick cut to the mother keeling over. <laughs> so good. 
That backstory about Shell, he's, he fascinates me because, but the reason John met Shell was, you know, John was working for Norm Arno, you know, who's head of VCX and Norm was partnered with Mickey Zaffirano, you know, capo of the Bonanno crime family at a production company called Lord Perry, right? And Lord Perry was largely distributing loops and doing some loan sharking on the side. And so first of all, I'm like, huh, John Amiro in there. And what's more, John got Kurt Mann, you know, who is our drag queen at the final scene of Blonde, a job as a receptionist at Lord Perry. So like freaking frack in the office just makes me laugh, you know, this sort of mobster office. And then you have these two gay guys selling straight loops. But anyway, Shell came in, you know, looking to get some product because Shell owned a number of movie theaters in Sweden, mostly in Stockholm. And I think tried to get John to set up, you know, a little bit of an under the counter deal. And I think gladly John thought better than crossing a, a, you know, a mafioso and doing that. But it's really, you know, through there that John pitched Shell and basically said, hey, here's an alternative way to think about getting product for your theaters. And that's how he initially got the funding for Every Inch a Lady, which led to this. So, you know, this was like a big and long relationship born out of the darker sides of the business, but uh, coming up bright in Blonde Ambition. We should probably introduce the character of Max as well, who... Now, he's the private detective, but he also is in the Gone with the Wind musical. Is that right? Am I remember correct? Yeah, he's the Brett Butler. Okay. I don't know how the detective that – so Eric Edwards' mother, Stephen Carlyle III's mother, very suspicious of these two floozies. Well, you know, they're in show business, which is just akin to prostitution anyway. So they're staying in his place. How dare they? And they might have – designs on the son who even though he's going to inherit all of her money anyway uh she wants to keep it all for herself right now i think is what she says so she's super jealous of these girls and sets this private detective out to keep an eye on them it's very gentlemen prefer blondes with the detective on the boat uh that the father sends to keep an eye on actually i think the son i think gus edmund uh jr sends this detective to watch on marilyn Monroe to make sure that she's not fooling around on him on her way to Paris. And then there's the jealous father who really doesn't have too much of a role in that. And the mother in this one has much more of a role. She, we're constantly cutting back to her and her really needling her son and just being kind of a, kind of a harpy, I would say in this whole (laughs) thing. And I'm surprised she doesn't have sex in this. Of all the people that don't have sex, I was very surprised. (laughs) <laughs> that she and one of her, you know, manservants uh, aren't going at it at some place. Uh, W.P. Dremack, I think is the gentleman's name. He uh, plays Edward the Butler, uh, also plays a few other roles at the same time. And I love there's I think there's one part where he comes into um, a room and you actually hear uh, somebody off screen yell action. Uh, <laughs> he says on screen. So Max, the detective who also gets to play Rep Butler, played by uh Wade Nichols and or uh here credited as Wade Parker. Super handsome guy. This guy is amazing looking. I mean, I know Eric Edwards is really stunning as well, but Wade Nichols really rocking it out in this role. 
He's amazing. Yeah, we did a deep profile of him on the Rialto Report. To, you know, Wade Nichols, aka Dennis Poza, aka Dennis Parker. Wade Parker is, for my mind, he probably one of the most beautiful men to have ever been an adult, gay or straight, and he was in both. And he actually, uh, if you ever see Radley Metzger's uh, Barbara broadcast, oh. you've seen oh, oh, the best, the best that scene with him and CJ Lang. Oh, just I just got chills thinking about it. It's one of the best scenes in erotica, down boots, like period. And the, the way he looks, just his gaze, and I mean, and especially when you you find out that he, you know, he was gay in real life. Yeah, although he had no trouble even as a gay man doing straight sex scenes, said John, as opposed to other gay actors. And then, you know, it's no doubt that he was a sex symbol because he, you know, in in the late 70s went on to have a long running recurring part on Edge of Night, the soap opera. And I remember John told me, I love the story about how the news in the newsroom or the mailroom, the girls who would get letters, fan letters for him, um, you know, would go through them. And some of those letters would be trying to out him as a gay porn star. And they would just tear him up and not let them go through because they loved him so much and they wanted him to stay on on edge of night so he was basically on edge of night recurring up until his death from aids and you know sort of the early to mid 80s and my other favorite thing about him was he made some great disco songs with uh, Henri Belolo, who is the guy who's the driving force behind the village people. So, you know, y'all should go out and either on the Rialto Report site or go to YouTube and you'll just Google New York by night or like an eagle and you'll see um, Wade, aka Dennis, was not just another pretty face. But he is a pretty face. He is, he is. stunning. <laughs> he is. He is. An, and talk about stunning. Can we talk about George Payne for a minute? I love the fact that he, in this film, is dubbed over kind of like a Hercules movie. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. And yes. he's totally got that Steve Reeves beauty. That does sound like Frankenfurter too much. From it Rocky sounded Porter, very Frankenfurter, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we can he, take him you know, an old Steve Reeves, Reeves movie. Over. Yes. Um, he is, he's gorgeous. He's also one of my favorite actors. Cause George Payne, for being so strikingly handsome, he's a chameleon. Cause I've seen him, like you, like if you see him in, um, Cecil Howard's, um, scoundrels, he looks different. He looks way different there than he does here. Or, I mean, and it's like, wow, for being like such a striking fellow, he can, he can kind of morph into different roles. You, I just love Sugar's reaction though, when she sees George Payne at his most, Steve Reeves, masculine, handsome gravitas, sunning himself in a jock, and this little jock strap. If that was real life, it would be like, a, like it'd be like David Crosby, and cut off shorts. You know, like it's this is why movies are beautiful. It is interesting that there's this whole tricking the gay guy into straight sex, though, which is just kind of. Odd that you've got a gay director, well, two gay directors, both of the Amaro brothers being gay, but yet this scene of, and I guess it was just we needed a sex scene here or something, but this whole thing of like, oh, I'm going to get this guy so turned on, he's not going to care that I'm a woman. And I'm like, okay. 
it's so funny because it's like art imitating life, imitating art. Because if you think about it, you know, this was probably one of the first times that John worked with George, but certainly not the last. And George became a regular on, in a couple of the Francis Ellie films. Those are the films, you know, the gay films that John made under the name Francis Ellie. And, you know, George always said, no, I, I prefer sex with women, you know, and would object, but became this huge gay sex symbol, you know, similar to how, I guess, you know, Dennis Parker, Wade, became this gay guy who's a sex symbol to women. All the sex scenes were largely shot like months later, right? So they did all the straight production. And if you think about that, just the challenge of that, because they were setting up in, whether it was Manhattan Studios or in, you know, somebody's apartment to shoot these scenes, and then they'd literally have to take all the props back and either hold on to them or go back to the rental shop, you know, months and months later, hoping that they would be there, you know, and they would shoot the the scenes later. But anyway, so they first shot just the non-sex parts with George. And John said to George, you know, hey, you're going to need to come back in a few months you have to look the same way. And they started it, I guess, in the in the late fall or something. And he knew that George was a sun worshiper. And then George went away and like got a mad suntan. So it's like, if you're watching the film, it's like, no suntan, suntan, no suntan, suntan. It's really so obvious that George was like, no matter how good an editor Lem is, we're not getting around this. That's where you need those digital effects. Yeah. Well, it's so good that George is so good looking because then you're not maybe looking at the tan line so much. And let's be honest, we have to, because Eric Edwards in this, who has the most famous tan lines in classic adult cinema? Ooh, good mm-hmm. point. That Eric Edwards. Very good point. I feel like we have to at least talk a little bit about David Morris. It's uh, we, I think the character name is Luke. Is, first of all, like the conceit of like he's losing his hair, which just makes me laugh so much. It's just such a weird thing. But he is, he is adorable, you know, like the Tony Danza of porn. And I just think he's such a great little innocent counterbalance to, you know, what's going on. And, you know, especially, I mean, David Morris, you know, he died tragically of a drug overdose in Florida in the early 2000s. And he was living in like abject poverty. Yeah, we're doing a deep dive on him. So we'll have more on him soon on the Rialto Report. But he was, he's just such a, like a little stark breath of fresh air in this movie. Yes, he's so sincere. And that's what I love. I found it very interesting, you know, we talked about gentlemen prefer blondes and this whole thing of sending the private detective after the Marilyn Monroe character to make sure that she's on the up and up. And in this one, when the mother sends Max after the Kane sisters, there really isn't a problem at the end of the film that Max and Candy have been coupling, and I'm doing the finger going into the hand gesture quite a bit, they've been <laughs> coupling through so much of this film, but that's not really an, a problem. You know, that's, it's like, well, of course, they're two attractive people. Of course, they're going to have sex. There's not like at the end him going, wait a second, Eric Edwards, we've been fucking. It's like, no, they don't even bring that up at all. It's he more like, is she a gold? Mike. <laughs> it's more like is she a gold digger or not well there's a thing though where um, Aunt, Sibyl, Aunt Sybil when they have the big climax is like oh he's a family man and Dory and Dory Devon's like oh a family man you know like he wasn't a family man with me a few nights ago but you know because you mentioned Kurt Mann earlier we have to talk about Kurt Mann because I love him 
so much in this film. And he's also the butler in one of my favorite movies ever, which is Firestorm. Like oh, Cecil so Howard's good. Firestorm. Mm-hmm. And he's so, and even though it's like a, it's a small role in that film, he's, he's a very pivotal character in a lot of ways and, and definitely one of the moral centers in a, in a way. And he's, and I mean, doing double duty here. And cause he was like, a, I mean, finding out that he was like this kind of this drag pioneer. Like he was doing drag for years. And, you know, for any listeners, I mean, you have to keep in mind this was, you know, drag is, which is awesome, but it's very kind of become very mainstream with like RuPaul's Drag Race, which I love. So it's all good. But this is the 70s, a very different era. And, and he brings it. And he, we get to see him as, as was it, Queen of the Fairies? This is a little side piece, but I love it. You know, they shot a bunch of the film without sound, right? MOS. And so my favorite scene at the end in the... um in the pits, you know, is Kurt sort of leading the charge, doing the MC in the drag queen, and how uh, he holds the microphone in front of his mouth, like in the most, like, like, it's the best way, because you can hear in the back of your head, like John saying, listen, we're gonna have to cut in some dialogue later, I don't know what it's gonna be to make us uh, attach these scenes one to the other. So hold that microphone to your mouth. But like Kurt just makes it look so effortless. Like you said, Heather, he's just like such a professional and like ruling the roost in the pits. So good. And some of his lines, like when I, I can't remember which one, one of the girls is on stage, one of the, the drag queens, and he says something like, she's going to do like, was it the dance of the virgins later? But she's only doing it from memory or something. <laughs> Darling, you may not be the ugliest drag queen here tonight, but when she dies. <laughs> I love that this whole thing really ends up, you know, April around here is going to be screwball comedy month. And this movie ends like a screwball comedy. This whole thing, of course, the brooches get mixed up. And then Kurt Mann ends up with the brooch and he's going to use it for this big drag appearance at the pits. And then it's this whole thing of like, okay, then we find out that Max is actually a detective and they trap him in the house. And meanwhile, you know, the mother is coming back over on the Concord and yelling at the pilots and just this whole confluence of events all taking place at this uh, drag club and it, it's just amazing. I love it. And I love all the stuff that's going on. I listened to this yesterday with headphones and hearing all of the background conversations that are going on at the pits while all of this stuff is going on is great. You get all of this uh, kind of like ADR stuff of all these different conversations. And I just love it. I just love how all this comes in. And I love how the the two girls that the Kane sisters end up going in male drag and that, you know, it's like, no, no, don't take off all your clothes. <laughs> because, because of course, all the gay guys are going to be completely disgusted when a woman takes off her clothes at this gay club. <laughs> and if we're going to talk screwball, I mean, we have to talk about the Ice Palace sex scene, don't we? What a bizarre thing. They were like, we're going to fit this in. We're going to go to a training rink for kids, and we're going to drag in a baby grand, and we're going to have people on skates perform a like simulated sex scene with some sex actually put in later. I mean, what in the Sonia Henny hell is going on here that we're just going to, like, where does this even come from in your imagination? Like, yeah, uh, Sugar's going up in this elevator and there are these two people and they're, she's flirting with both of them and ends up having sex with them. And yeah, their apartment question mark is an ice rink. 
It's like, yeah. where Heather, does this Heather, come you from? have to explain it to us. Heather, help us understand. The essential ingredient, in my opinion, for a perfect screwball comedy is you have to have like a dash of surrealism. And I think this is where we have the surrealism. It's kind of like, you know, there was that, I'm trying to remember which Marx Brothers film it is, where Harpo spends half the movie walking around with a hat that's just on fire. Like, it's like that. You're like, why? It's great. You know, I can't explain it. It's hilarious. Um, also just, I love, I love the way that Susie Mandel, like, does her little, she does this, like, this little shoulder shimmy as she's get, getting ready to, like, kind of grab the guy next to her in the elevator's crotch. And just like, and then the lady's like, oh, and then grabs her bum. And, and then, of course, they live in an, like, an ice rink, uh, like you do. Like um, you do. It's what New Yorkers do, isn't it? It's um, it, totally eccentric. I like to think they're eccentric swingers. Yeah, it's just like they have a they somebody some somebody's rich aunt died and they they got an inheritance. They had a a different type of Buckingham brooch situation and they decided to uh, indulge in their uh, lascivious lifestyle and their love of ice skating. It's a great way to keep in shape. Can't imagine what the ov- the overhead would be on that. I read somewhere that Susie Mandel was very very honest. And April, you could probably speak way more to this than me with John about basically having two left feet and the fact that she was able to ice skate and strip yeah. at the same time. Like if I tried to do that, it would, it would end in like uh, probably like a fracture at the very least. Oh no, it's true. And uh, I love Jeannie Joseph's AKA, you know, Erica Haven's AKA Eve Milan, you know, in that scene too. They're all, they all just look one blade away from a terrible accident. <laughs> When you wake up at night and have to go to the bathroom, do you have to put on the skates? Do you take them off when you sleep? Yeah. Uh, it's a, that could these are the important questions. I'm, I'm seeing uh, some plot holes. Like if somebody went in and was went to the Amira Brothers and was like, can you give me my backstory here? I would have loved to hear that. Oh, yeah. I'll have to look on YouTube and see if this is under that Cinema Sins where they oh, talk about <laughs> Everything wrong with blonde ambition in 15 minutes. If there's anything I, I loathe more than digital nudity, it is, it is cinema sense. But uh, I, I, I do. I'm so glad you mentioned Erica, April, because I love her little dance. Like when the sex is going on and she's just doing this cute little, just like little ice skating dance. Like she's like, I'm, I'm good with the sex. I'm just going to go over here and shimmy. I love because it is a musical. It is a song and dance uh, production, you know, but you're totally right, Heather, before about, you know, Susie just having two left feet, you know, and how I remember John saying how thrilled he was when they found Dory because Dory had this sort of professional song and dance background. And you can see it, right? It comes through. She absolutely looks way more professional, you know, it's in versus what do we do with, with Susie two left foot? Okay, we'll we'll shove her behind a big tuba and hope that nobody right. notices. Oh gosh, we didn't mention the tuba. Cause that leads up to my my absolute favorite moment in this movie. And this is early on, back when they're still in Wyoming, but when they they end their number by saying up yours like the- <laughs> <laughs> slightly out of time, which makes it ever more endearing. When Eric Edwards applauds, and uh, they're just like, what is that noise? (laughs) (laughs) Dory Devon just said, that's applause, honey. Like that. 
it's oh my so god fun. when they're I mean, back in the kitchen and we can hopefully forgive the most offensive asian portrayal since making oh Rooney and breakfast at tiffany's that's larue our, our lovely larue for you know aka our screen writer aka our costumer who's there as the asian cook in there oh gosh i was like i was like john how could you and he's like yeah that didn't age well did it the, the the can of raid was a nice oh. touch in that kitchen. <laughs> oh my goodness! And back to the drag scene though. One thing that cracked up is how when Sugar and everybody's still thinking she's a, a drag queen, she starts kind of showing her 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 breasts. And one of the guys says, "I hope her dicks is as big as her breasts." <laughs> I don't like that line. Like, I mean, that's so that's so great. It's just, um, and then they then they, they she flashes, you know, uh, her her lady area, and they scream. One of the guys literally screams in horror. <laughs> We can act, but this is beyond the pale, John and Lem. How do you do this to us? <laughs> so good. I love your. I love how proper you are, Heather. You're like you know her lady parts, her private her lady parts, area. Yeah. <laughs> her mons, her, her mons veneris, mons penis, her flower, her delicate flower <laughs> is displayed. <laughs> I just love Susie Mandel so much in this, and her comic timing, especially when she keeps trying to leave the apartment and goes into the closet instead, <laughs> and that that ends up being the joke. How they trap Max later on. It's so good. I love it. You know, you're you're looking there and you're like, okay, you know, it's a play on her past characters is sort of like the dits and stuff. And, you know, she's sort of, you're like, is she nearsighted? Like, what's happening? All of a sudden, she's in glasses playing the tuba and she's banging into things on the stage and going in the closet when she's trying. You're like, is she just like not bright? What's happening here? But she plays it so well. And John said, you know, really, in a, in a funny way, it's a play on her history, right? She came up through Benny Hill and, you know, these sort of rompy kind of sex pot roles where she had extremely little dialogue. And if you think about it, Blonde Ambition has a ton of dialogue, right? And he said it was an absolute challenge for Susie, you know, that she said that, uh, you know, that volume of dialogue was something very new to her. Whereas, you know, I think Dory Devon, it was... Um, and certainly, you know, our bull Eric Edwards, these people who had professional training, like no problem for them because they're steeped in it. But she definitely, it was tougher for her. It's kind of good because she's always good for the quips, you know, and the way that we cut back to her. And yet that quote you said earlier about a dick a day, you know, keeps the <laughs> hornies <laughs> away. <laughs> you know, just those little things that she adds in there, I think are really smart to give her those quips that she lands every single one of them too. Yeah, because even the Gone with the Wind scene, you know, I think John was like, okay, she's not going to perform sex. So, like, how do we fit her as one of our leads into this scene? You know, giving her the one line where Jamie comes in to ask her to say it. I love the disdain on Jamie's face as she butchers her one line and he just walks away. I love the idea of, like, how do you mix in the person who's not going to be doing sex versus, like, how do you kind of mix in the person who is doing sex? I love adult film. <laughs> so funny. It's like, oh, I'm the odd man out. I'm not doing hardcore sex on film. How am I going to work my way in here? Talk about some really bad puns in there, too. Something like, uh, I'm waiting for my uncle and auntie Bellum. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so bad. Oh, love no, it. But, but so, but so good. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, 
Yeah, it's funny because, you know, it's like I think about it, right? So they're shooting all this, so much time is passing. And to your point, Mike, you know, Shell is having trouble, financial trouble back home. So they're waiting for finishing funds. They're not coming in. And so if you think about it, you know, starting pre-production in 76 and this not being formally released until 81, that's like super super long period of time. And then obviously, you know, John and Lem played up on that. You hear it in the trailer, you know, every 10 years, the Amiro brothers finish a film. You are fortunate enough to be living in such a decade. Um, you know, and they, I think they put that on the invitations to the premiere and, and everything, but, um, that premiere, I think the premiere was 80, you know, and then it's, uh, released in 81 by, you know, mature pictures, Sam Lake and Bobby Sumner. They were the U.S. distributors and then Shell handled the foreign sales. But I, you know, I think it did pretty decently financially. I think, you know, I, I think as John and Lem is the filmmaker, you never see the exact open books. You know, when you're the, when you're just the lowly directors and on these films and those back in those days, you know, you really got the short end of the stick. It was the distributors, you know, and the, and the producers, the financiers who, who got it all. But certainly, you know, I think they set it up so that they could cut it three ways, hardcore, softcore, and R-rated. You know, I know at least John told me that aside from, you know, the, it premiered at the World, the famous theater where Deep Throat had premiered, um, you know, it was premiered overseas. I think that, I can't remember if this is accurate or not, but I think Shell flew John and Lem over to the UK for the premiere. Um, and then it ran sort of in the midnight cinema scene in New York for a while, and Kurt used to show up in drag and do his little autographs and perform for people. So, you know, from a Mirror Brothers standards and even standards of the day, this was a pretty successful film in the end. In so many ways. I didn't know about that Time Out article, April. That's awesome. Let's be honest. It's like one reporter at Time Out who probably said, this is my second favorite film of all time. And I'm like, now it's official. But it is great. I mean, it's, you know, if you think about a lot of the fare from that, from the time, you can't say that these are like magnum opi, right? Like they're mostly pretty middling films of people trying to learn how to make films. But this one, it's like blonde ambition. Lem maybe is the blonde because they had the ambition to do something bigger and better than they'd ever done, you know, and in a way they succeeded, which is beautiful. And I, I would actually be remiss if I didn't mention the um, when they're in the jail cell. I have to mention this because I love this so much. The two, the two leathermen, <laughs> like one of just accuses the other. Like this is all your fault. I wanted to go to the opera. Like, <laughs> and, uh, and, and yeah, and to your point, April. Like ab- absolutely, I think this film. I mean, because I sometimes. I get frustrated whenever I see people do like, oh, the, you know, the best adult films of all time. And like Debbie does Dallas is always like high up there. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, the film is terrible. It's not a good movie. And I mean, even though it has, it does have some great actors. I mean, I know like Eric Edwards in it and Eric, I obviously is great and everything, but it's like that film is not good. Blonde, I'm like blonde ambition. This film is, it's a great movie. It's, fun it's well made there are parts of this soundtrack that get stuck in my head i also love how like some of the music almost makes me think kind of like uh of like those you remember those jackie gleason's for lovers only's albums like from the 1560s but like way 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 better like way less schmaltzy but kind of just that sort of like just like elegant tea room and sex and i and it's such a great combination (laughs) John always stole the best music from the library for his films, that's for sure. 
but it's true. You know, it's, this is funny. It's funny. This film is fun, you know? So it's like, even if it isn't the greatest film ever made, you can, uh, you know, to prepare for this podcast, John asked me to watch it again with him because he was sort of scared to watch it again. <laughs> you know, he's like, oh, how am I going to feel about it? And he was, you know, watching it through sort of half slit fingers, you know, over his eyes. But, uh, you know, I caught him laughing at his own work. And I was like, John, aren't you the guy who always told me edit it like you hate it? And he's like, hey, but this is good. It, it's held up. So even John who's tough on his own work, you know, walked away having rewatched this thinking like, that was fun. That was funny. And I think obviously for him, it brought back a lot of memories because it's making films with your best friends. And that's the thing I'd like to reading his book. And we'll talk a little bit more about his book in a bit. And especially when we hear from John in a few minutes, they shoot the end of this at one of the movie theaters where he worked at and he would get jobs for his friends at all of these different movie theaters. There were so many times where it's like, well, and I was between movies and then I ended up going back to this theater and I worked there. And then, you know, I, you mentioned how he got Kurt Mann, a, a, a secretary job with the gangster, but he would also get people jobs at these movie theaters that he was working at. Yeah. He was so into film and entertainment. And I think if he was not a fantastic filmmaker, he would have made one hell of a great manager at a movie complex. Well, he did. He did. And uh, yeah, I mean, of course, he had to fire Roberta Finley because he got her a job being the ticket sales girl and she started pocketing the money and letting people in for free. <laughs> so that was the one, a little bit of a crack in the friendship. Uh, I think that they recovered, but you know, be careful. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play a whole slew of interviews here. First up, we'll hear from actor Kurt Mann. After that, we'll hear from additional cameraman Larry Ravine, then writer LaRue Watts, and last but definitely not least, director John Amaro. And we'll be back with all of that right after these brief messages. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate, and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts, 
go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Are you tired of stubborn understains in your gusset? Do you suffer from a peculiar disease which only an expensive series of pills with appalling side effects can prolong? Do you long for a professional movie website and podcast with a sense of humor, insight, and passion that hasn't yet fallen under the thrall of the big studios and basically turned into a soulless marketing hub? Well, we can at least do the third thing. Head on over to AfterMovieDiner.com for all your genre film needs, Americana, movie podcasts, comedy, incredibly large trousers, by fans, for fans, without added salt, and relatively free of dripping. Our podcast is also available on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are found. The After Movie Diner. Come on in, won't you? Hi there, faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts Podcatchers, both Android and iOS. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, we are going to hear from actor Kurt Mann. Tell me more about how you met uh, the Ameros and, and what was that like? There used to be, there was this small bar on the west side of New York called the Big Spender, and it was, um, one owner was a straight dancer and the other owner was a gay singer. And the straight guy didn't mind it being referred to as a gay bar, but the gay one was incensed that it was a theater bar. And, you know, there's not much difference. It was kind of like a clubhouse. I mean, it wasn't like really cruisy. I mean, if you made out, great, but that's not why people went. And it was just a fun place. And that's where Lem was putting up the poster. And, you know, then he, we sat and we talked and we, you know, we both loved the movies. And, and then um, sometime after that, I met John. John came in, and um, I was uh, fresh out of the uh, jewel box, and I needed work because that wasn't going to go. That was not going very well at that point. And so he was managing the Translux West Movie Theater, and so he got me a job over there. So that's you know how I got started with him. And then they were just wrapping up a film called Bacchanal. And which was their first in Technicolor. Actually, it was just regular color, but I missed out on that one. But I said, I said to them, I said, I said, oh, I love the movies. I would love to be in a movie. The next one they did was called Dynamite. And um, actually, that was my, my motion picture debut was in Dynamite. And I played the usher of a movie theater who, it was about a girl who goes around selling sex toys or something. And she winds up in a theater and then she winds up on stage getting getting fucked with the manager on the stage. And then the usher, me, and the cashier, who is um, Darcy Brown, we suddenly tear off our jackets. We have all these red, white, and blue stuff on. We were tap dancing on either side of them to uh, Stars and Stripes Forever. They like to put musical numbers in whenever they can you know, cram them in there. Worked at the Jewel Box. You mentioned that. And, and how did you get into that? And what was your background leading up to that? I was living on Long Island. I was 18 and, you know, fresh out of school and all that. And I'd met the owners of the show very briefly socially. 
And then um, this this bar on Long Island was doing a show, and I said I would do it. And I did um, I did uh, an impression of Phyllis Diller, and unbeknownst to me, Danny and Doc were there. And they had recently uh, had a huge blow-up with uh, Lynn Carter, who was their star. It was a very talented person. And um, they were looking for someone who could stand up and talk. They didn't do, they didn't do um, like now, it's, down here it's all lip-syncing. But they, don't do, they didn't do that. You had to either talk or sing or dance or do something for real. And um, so that's essentially how I, it started. Um, and um, they called me one day and they said, uh, can you be on the next bus to Albany? And there I was. But um, that was in um, like the summer. And so we traveled around New York State. And um, then finally, it came January, it was, it was getting ready to time to do the, the new show. And um, a lot of work went into it. It was a big show. It was always advertised as 25 men and a girl. And <laughs> there was rarely that many people. But um, so, yeah, so the Apollo Theater was where I, you know, we first did a theater. And after hearing the tinny little piano playing, you know, the music you're going to be working to, and then you go there and it was Reuben Phillips Orchestra and you hear the music played by an orchestra. It was just very exciting. It was showbiz, you know. But as time went on, um, you know, nightclubs started folding because of disco and stuff like that. So there really wasn't a lot of work going around. I mean, a little bit, but not a lot. And so I, I said, I got to get a real job. So that's when I went over to the, the Translux East. You mentioned female impersonator. I mean, was the term drag being used at the time? I mean, well, yeah, it was a drag. A drag was just, we didn't think of ourselves in terms of like drag queens on the street or like those, or like uh, that show pose or something like that. Although there were, the, there were people in that element that we knew. And, um, but we were, you know, we were, it was hard work. I mean, it wasn't, you know, I could never be a street drag queen. It's too much work. I got to put face on everything. I got I look at, I'm lucky if I shaved every other day. I remember I was, at one point I was under 21 because we were in Baltimore and I couldn't drink. Um, so I guess I was 20 when I was 20 and 67. I guess it was 68 or 69 when I started. And it was exciting and it was nice. But, you know, it, it becomes your job. And, um, you know, and, and we had to do, we would open in, in, at the Apollo and we would do 11 shows a weekend. And it'd be a movie, some horrible tacky movie in between. But yeah, it was we opened like Friday, Saturdays, and it was like well, three, three, four, something like that. And so yeah, and and it was like it was like when you see like uh, old movies like like Gypsy when they get into the burlesque theater. That's what it was like back then. The Apollo that was beautiful. They restored the whole thing, and it's you know great. But then it was kind of you know it was drafty and cold, and we were always getting sick. It was. Anyway, so then so so John, I begged to be in a movie, and they put me in a movie, and I knew my lines and didn't bump into the furniture. So they, I was always there to kind of hold the story together. And uh, yeah, Dynamite was actually it was a remake of the Corporate Queen, and even the woman who played in that had a had a role in um, Dynamite. Nothing sex, I don't think. She just was like the boss that sent this girl around to different places. And then, um, and then, then there was, uh, and then, um, because of that, you know, I did another for them. Um, I can't think what their name is. I know whether them, um, I think it was, uh, Pepper or Checkmate. Checkmate, I was like, uh, 
like 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 doing like a cameo where there's a scene um in Central Park and I'm supposed to be a jogger and she stops me and she asks me something about where they go bird watching and I point her out and I just go on my way. Um then um but then I met um through them, because of them, I also met, you know, Chuck Vincent and so I did a few things for him and um and then, so yeah, it was mostly John and Chuck. I did stuff with. I did a couple other people that I can't remember. I've heard nothing but great things about Chuck Vincent. He was nice. He, he could be very silly, but he was very serious about making his movies. And um, his scripts were usually kind of a little off and a little silly. But he, like John and Lem, he was more interested in the idea of making movies than making porn. So it, whenever you see their movies, they're. Um, they may have hardcore, but it's kind of like, you know, second tier. It's like that's not like that wasn't that much fun for them to do. They like to, you know, like I said, John Lim always tried to put like a fashion show or a musical number or something in in the middle of um, their movies. Like Blonde Ambition has songs and dances. How often would you be in drag in the films versus being uh, a male character? Because I found it interesting that you were both in uh, Blonde Ambition. Oh, well, yeah, Blonde Ambition, um, that, was the, yeah, that was the first time I did uh, drag in a film, yeah, that, and that was, um, um, we were filming down the village, so I had to do both. I had to be, I had to meet her early on where she, she dropped her diamonds on, onto my terrace, and she comes down, and I let her go get it, and um, I borrow it from her for the drag show that's going on at that club and it's uh, you know the old miss they get mixed up the real diamonds and the fake diamonds and and um and then the girls come down they won't let them in they, then the girls go get dressed up and they pretend they're drag queens and they get in and and it's you know because have you have you seen the movie have you yeah so it's fun it's kind of fun and it's like i said for them it was more fun doing that than doing um the sex scenes the sex scenes were actually more work you know, you people always think that it's going to be a breeze that oh great you you get these hot people in bed together and they just go at it and that's not the case at all. They would usually what they would do is they would if there were scenes that had to be acted, um, they would do those first and then let those people go, and then the other people would have to stay around for hours and hours trying to hope to get this together. And even even famous uh, stars like Harry Reams, he had bad times sometimes and. Um, like that. But I was I was rarely around for that sort of stuff. I was always out of there. John said something about you falling off a chair in the club. Oh, <laughs> yeah. well, yeah. I was in this in drag, and these, these things. I was walking along this bar. At one point, I was sitting on a, um, these apple boxes, surrounded by all these leather guys, and um, we were there. It was a place called Danny's on. Um, Christopher Street, which is no longer there, but um, and uh, they're like my my uh, posse or something. And what happened was I lost my balance and I started to fall off the box. And you're in this tight dress and you've got heels, and they're, so they're trying to help me and stuff. And actually, if you um, at the end of the movie um, when they do the credits, you know they do the old fashioned credits where they say your name and there's a picture of you from the movie. And so the, it says me and it shows me. Um, looking very young, opening the door for her, and then it cuts to me actually falling off the boxes, um, which is just an outtake, 
which it was, it just looks funny. Did you hurt yourself? No, no, not at all. No, I said they, they, they were, they were, they, I had all these guys around me. They were, they were, they'd help me, you know, keep not fall on the floor. What were some of your favorite roles to do? Well, that one was fun because I, and, and it depends so much. Sometimes I had more to do. Um, that was fun. Um, I did, uh, gosh, altogether I was in like, like, I think some like 35 different pictures. And, um, so it's hard to remember, but I usually played, you know, secretaries, butlers, whatever like that. Um, uh, besides blonde ambition, hmm, I really, I can't think of what it was, would be better than that. That was really fun. Um, um, I really can't be much help there right now. I, I, I can't think. <laughs> well, you were really terrific in that. Did you ever have any acting training? Well, uh, well, in school, you know, you do plays and musicals and stuff, and then, and then, of course, uh, in the jewel box. I mean, you have to. You're live on stage, and you. We besides doing my act, we, there were the jewel box had huge production numbers. I mean, it was, it was like, a, it was like a Ziegfeld show, really. I mean, you had all these people, and they were all dolled up, and 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 there were usually there were usually three big, big production numbers. So besides doing that, you had to learn. And I, I'm not a dancer. I mean, I, I could, I had to count everything all the time with a smile, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, and so um, yeah, so they had us doing in these outrageous costumes, these giant headdresses and things that you had to balance, and there were usually stairs to go up and down. And, um, so it was, uh, it was hard work. And I mean, but, you know, once you got, once you learned it, you said, well, all right, this is when I go and I have to go. And, and I always had a little bit of, um, of, of stage, stage fright, which I, apparently happens to a lot of people. And I'd be standing there in the wings, just waiting to be introduced. And I'd be like trembling. Saying, oh, God. But once I got out there and they, the, the Apollo audience was wonderful. And it, and it was a family show. It wasn't like now. There's a lot, a lot of you know, uh, swearing and stuff, and, and dirty jokes and stuff in in drag shows. And Danny and Doc, the owners, wanted none of that. They, they, it was, and it was indeed a family show. I mean, families would come. There'd be kids in the audience, so you had to be pretty clean. I mean, you couldn't, you know, really go crazy. I particularly remember you being really good in Wanda Whips Wall Street. Oh yeah, I don't have a lot to do in that though. I don't think I, I, I play a a board member who's gay. I think I don't know why they always cast me as the gay character. I can't figure that out. But um, yeah, that um, yeah, I I don't really I have that actually. I have the DVD of that, but I haven't seen it in ages. And all I can remember is that I played a board member uh, that made a couple of you know sarcastic remarks. So, they, you know, it's kind of like they gave me the the Eve Arden, Thelma Ritter parts to do. You know, like the the the, the wisecracker. Yeah. We also uh, a few years ago covered Roommates, and everybody that worked on that just seemed to love that film. I yeah, I was in that too. Can't remember what I did. I think you were commercial director. It, yeah, there's a cat. I think I'm doing a cat commercial, and we can't get the cat to eat the food. Oh, I did. I actually did one that was fun for for Chuck. Um, that was called. Um, oh, originally it was going to be called Snap, it, and this was actually an R-rated movie. It was a it was a SAG movie. I had to I got had to get a SAG contract for it. it the, the, the basic premise of it was uh, Chris Lemon, who is the son of Jack Lemon, was the star. It was German money, so the the woman, the co-star, was a woman I didn't know. She was German, and. Um, 
he is working for an ad agency and they make these bras and his job is now to go around to like five women with giant tits and get them to um to endorse the bras so it comes to my scene which is about 20 minutes in i think and um he i'm making a zombie movie and among the people in there are you know other former porn stars bobby astor jack um Wrangler is in it, um, and I'm making this zombie movie with with Jack Wrangler and Corinne Alfin. She was a a playmate of the month or something, and um, he dresses up as one of my zombies and he wrecks the place. And I I I get furious and carry on and scream at him and, and uh, get very crazy. And when I watch, when I ever see it now, what's more amazing to me is I'm actually smoking a cigarette, which I haven't done in such a long time. I think they ended up calling that one COD. Yeah, they did. I don't know. It was called Snap, and I'm not sure what was wrong with that. Uh, then they called, yeah, it was called COD. Um, and I don't know where they came up with that. I mean, but um, it's it's not very good. I mean, he's he's okay. And um, you know, it's just, it's, you know, Chuck's sense of humor was kind of, you know, juvenile. And he loved it. He just giggled away. But you know, it was no, uh, it wasn't really you know my thing. I was more literate, I guess. Why did you end up retiring from from movies? Well, it wasn't really a career for me. It was you know I did it for for them, and um, I didn't. I mean, even though I did as many as I did, it wasn't. Uh, I needed a real job, so um, I wound up working for um, New York Life Insurance until I retired. So that. That that's what got me to Fort Lauderdale, <laughs> and um, yes. Although there's oh, there was one fun thing that happened though, really, which was it involved John and Lem and myself. Is um, I guess it was like in 1982, Tommy Toon was making the musical Nine, that was going to open on Broadway with um, Raul Julia based on Fellini's Eight and a Half, and um, they called this um, agent's office, Dick Cataldi, and they asked if he knew any blousy broads that could play a hooker. And he said, and he didn't really, he said, but would you, what about a female impersonator? And so being that this was based on Fellini, they said, well, it might work. So um, there were only two of us, myself and this other one that I worked with sometimes called um, Chichi Laverne. And, um, anyway, the, 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 uh, I was, I was at New York Live, but I, I called in sick and I shaved off my mustache and I got dolled up and I was living on 45th street and the audition was in the New Amsterdam theater, which had not been renovated yet. It had been closed. It was a mess. And, um, and it was upstairs on the famous Ziegfeld roof, which was, I mean, it was, it looked like crap but it was there was only a couple of seats and it was dirty it was and um and so i uh yeah so john and lem went with me and they they stood there and watched and i got up and i dish and, and tommy toon wasn't there but um maury Yeston, who had written the music and the lyrics um he was there and so i got up they thought my name was blonde ambition because the only picture i had was a picture of me and it said blonde ambition under it so they thought that was my name and um I got up and I sang something, and it was kind of nice because um, afterward, uh, Maury Eston came up to me and said, he said, I think you're terrific. He says, but 
um, you're really not right for this show. And I said, well, I really didn't think I was. Um, he said, however, uh, I'm going to be doing, uh, in a couple of months, I'm going to be doing um, the musical of La Caja Fall. He says, and you should come and try it out for that. And I thanked him. Well, as it turned out, he didn't do La Caja Fall. Jerry Herman did. And I never got into that. So... That was, but I got to I got to sing and dance on the Ziegfeld roof, so that was kind of nice. <laughs> Is there any recordings of your Phyllis Diller? Um, not that I know of. I don't have any. I mean, um, yeah, I just have pictures. Some are crappy. Some are pretty good. There's only one in the whole album that's in, in color, which is just somebody just snapshot, I guess. And uh, yeah, so that was, uh, yeah, so. The most fun thing we did, which actually in the jewel box, which I, which was actually my suggestion and was a lot of fun to do is, um, the number, uh, Big Spender from Sweet Charity. And there were, there were one, two, three, four, there were five of us. We, uh, came out from different sides with our little bar to hang off of. And that was fun to do because I love, I love the trashy things, you know. And, um, so that was fun. That seems like it must have been just, yeah, such a ball to do. Yeah, it was because you could you know, really be kind of slutty and fun, and the audience loved it. And that was, it. Well, you know, I'm so glad that things like this archive exists because otherwise it just kind of disappears into history. I'm literally a museum piece now because I donated my scrapbook to the Stonewall Museum and Archive down here in Fort Lauderdale. I called them and I asked, I said, I have this, would you be interested? Because I thought about it and I thought, you know, my brother knows all about it and everything and he's seen the pictures and he's seen the movies and, and he, um, has nothing against it, but I said, his kids, uh, you know, they're like another couple of steps removed. And I said, eventually he'll just wind up in the garbage. So, um, I thought, let me just call and see if they, well, they were delighted. And actually he did, uh, they did an, an exhibit. Um, not too long after I gave it to them, they did an exhibit on um, letters, uh, correspondence between parents and their gay children. And some of them were very, very touching because they were writing to kids who were in jail and stuff like that. And mine was, um, um, they were telegrams from my mother and my grandparents to different places we were playing, like in Washington or wherever. And he thought that was kind of cool, at the, especially that my grandparents would send me these these funny uh, telegrams. Were they aware of what you were up to? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. They never saw me. Um, my actually, um, we we played Long Island once. There's a, there was an, an, an Italian nightclub there called the San Susan, and my mother was living along, and, and I was kind of disappointed that she never came to see it. But um, yeah, they never saw it, but they knew about it. Actually, my father knew about. Well, actually, my father saw Blonde Ambition. I think that's the first thing, and he didn't, he didn't think it was. He, he thought it was funny. He liked it. Oh, that's great! Yeah. It's so nice to have supportive parents. Yeah. Well, of course, I was grown and not living with them anymore. Right. Yeah. Um, it would have been a different story then. It, yeah. Well, yeah, it was for a while. Yeah. But mm. um, did, I'm, I'm assuming you read John's book. Oh my God! Yeah, it's so good. It's wonderful. It really is. It's. I read it like I breezed on through it. Right. And it's like it, it's like sitting at the bar and just chatting with him, which we did a lot of. So it's fun and it's it's um, it felt a little bit unusual to be reading about myself in somebody else's biography. Right. <laughs> and I thought of doing my own. I actually started it, but I'm very lazy, and I said, okay, I'll put it we'll put it aside. 
because uh, you know, I said, I said for an essentially for essentially a nor- an ordinary person, I've gotten into some extraordinary circumstances that now and then I thought, you know, it'll be fun. So maybe I'll get back to that. But his is really good. I really loved it. Yeah, I and that whole idea of him just sitting at the bar and talking with you is exactly the same feeling I had. It just and it's, yeah, because it's uh, when I was, I was reading it, I could hear his voice just telling the stories. He was a great storyteller. He really was very good at that. And and of course, Lem was very dear to me. And of course, and that, that 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 ended badly, but which is a shame. Mister Giesman, thank you so much for your time. This was great. It's always kind of surprising to me that anybody remembers any of that, really. It's so long ago, and, you know, like you and and, and the museum here even being interested is um, kind of really uh, nice to, and nostalgic to look back on. Next, we're going to hear from Larry Ravine. You worked a lot with the Amaro Brothers. When did you first come across them, and what was that like? I first came across them when I moved to New York in 68. I had already been, uh, you know, I went to the uh, NYU uh, Masters in, in film, and um, uh, I had already done a fair amount of, of film work in Virginia for, the, for NASA. I did a film with Armin Weston where I was the DP it was called Heatwave and then I did two Spanish speaking films, they were action films and then because Armin, he was using Joao Fernandez to shoot his film, who was much more experienced than I was at that time and a wonderful guy and a terrific cameraman and Armin asked me if I would do the stills, you know, on the production which I did that was fun. Through that connection with Armin and, and, and stuff, then John asked me to do the stills on Blonde Ambition. I did that. Roberta Finley was uh, the DP on that. And she, she was, uh, I guess you probably know, uh, was uh, Mike Finley's wife. She uh, segued from acting into being a director of photography. And so she was shooting. She had worked with John and Lem uh, for a number of years and on and off. And uh, they were they were good friends. So she did the um, the major photography. And then then uh, that was sort of an introduction into that whole Chuck Vincent and a bunch of other from him. You know, it, it just kind of snowballed as far as like connections once uh once I had had done that, because I did a lot of uh, pickup shots for that film. They used my studio in New York to do the shots that they needed. They went on for a very long time, like doing little inserts and polishing little places in the film and stuff to make it better and stuff. And it was great fun because these guys are hilarious to work with. I mean, they, John and Lem were just a, a riot. Then I did uh, a bunch of films with John where he was Francis Ellie, and then I did the RSVP. We did that in um, California and Hollywood, actually, uh, some years later. So I, I have a long relationship with them, uh, with John. Anyway, Willem, of course, unfortunately passed away. 
but um, they were they were quite something to work with. And it's amazing how you pick up from guys like that because they were MGM fanatics, and that's why the Blonde Ambition was a musical. You know, they always wanted to do a musical. That was, uh, you know, the beginning of the film. That's uh, my little insert there of playing the drums with thinking with with the soundtrack, you know, and uh, that was that was fun. We did a lot of uh, pickups. They, they were great at you know, making props and stuff to do the different things. The one thing I remember, and this was like kind of like their sense of humor, was that um, we did one sign and it said that it was talking about the film another film within the film. It's a miracle picture. If it's a good film, it's a miracle. That's a, that's kind of the epitome of their, their humor, you know, and they had a lot of it. Really great stuff. You're the drummer at the beginning, and then did I read right that you're also the photographer at the in the club at the end as well? Yeah, because I was standing around and I happened to have some cameras on me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they gave me a trench coat and I, I was uh, I was on screen. But the drumming thing, that was my first avocation. And I, you know, I've played for years. As a matter of fact, that's one of the reasons I went to New York from Virginia to play jazz drums. I conveniently segued into the film. I was always, uh, always good at getting up early in the morning for the sunrises and stuff. But I wasn't so great every night playing till two or three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> What kind of drumming did you enjoy the most? What was your your genre? I played all kinds of music. I was on the road with a rock and roll band for a while, and uh, I played in in society bands, you know, trios and that sort of thing. And I I would have to say that jazz was my... I aspired to be a, a jazz drummer. Of course, when I got to New York, I realized there were a lot of really good jazz drummers. You know, so it made, made it a little easier to segue into the uh, film business, you know. Anyway, I played played for a number of years once I got to New York. You know, I played, even played one one a couple of tunes with Chick Corea. So, you know, I, I got a full taste of that. But then, you know, after a while, of course, with the film schedules and stuff, it wasn't practical anymore to, to do that. I had to sort of make a choice, you know. I knew the first year that I didn't have a gig on New Year's Eve that I was out of the music business. <laughs> One thing that's been amazing for me, how everybody seemed to kind of cross over and work on each other's projects. And it just seems like such a uh, kind of a tight knit group of creators and you know you've got the same actors the same editors the same folks just working on all of these different films all you know kind of crossing paths with one another just depending on what the project was you're absolutely right about that because um there was a close-knit circle of filmmakers john lamb chuck vincent and then it sort of spread to Henri Pochard and, and Radley Metzger, I, I um, you know, shot for all of those people, uh, word of mouth, and some other people that I won't mention did films, you know. Of course, I did the I did the bulk of the films with Chuck because he was Chuck Vincent because he was he was the real go getter, you know. I mean, he was he never stopped, you know. He was really uh, wound up, raring to go. He would practice tap dancing every morning for a half an hour and then have breakfast, you know, and then go right with it, work with a writer. Every morning he would work with a writer a couple of hours 
and he had a file cabinet full of scripts, you know, which was very much like a painter. You know, if you went into a studio and a painter had one painting, you wouldn't think much. But Chuck was like that. He, you know, he had lots of lots of scripts. As a matter of fact, uh, I took Ron Jeremy up to the first time to meet Chuck. And Chuck, upon meeting him and talking with him a little bit, he walked over to the file cabinet, pulled out a, a script and said, this is what I want you guys to do. And it would turn out to be Fascination, one of Ronnie Ronnie's first major roles, you know. And then you directed that one as well, correct? I did. Yeah, I, I shot it, directed it, and edited it. That's what I did with uh, a lot of Chuck's the films, some of the films that I did with Chuck. A lot of these movies all feel very New York-based. When was there a shift to more California work, and when did you make that move? I never went to California to live. I always kind of considered it the ultimate in, in suburban living. I was in New York. I was working for Universal Studios uh, as an ed- editor. After Easy Rider, all of the studios, uh, you, you know the story. I mean, they, they all just said, these guys are making a fortune off of a $100,000 film. We can't compete with that. And they sold all the backlots and the studio system went kaput, you know, and all, all of that. But I never went there. They wanted me to go. And I said, I just got into New York. I was there for about three years or so. And New York was really the place, especially, again, for jazz and that, that sort of thing. I held my ground and, and stayed in New York, started freelancing. You know, one thing led to another, basically. Did the adult industry taper out in New York after a while and, and be more California-centric, or was there always a very healthy adult industry in New York? It was the girls, Mike. All the girls went to California. And we got, uh, you know, towards the beginning, there were pl- there was uh, quite a stable of of, of uh, uh, women that have worked here, and and then the California X market picked up, and uh, that's where the girls went. Towards the end, we were flying girls in to New York from California, so it, it evolved into the, the sunshine. <laughs> That just doesn't seem like a viable economic model to fly in all the actors. Well, depend on who they were, because they were the ticket. They were the ones that, you know, they they were the ones that sold the films. That's it. They made the money, and the guys were like, although, you know, in the features, they were, you know, people like Jamie Gillis and stuff, they were a draw. But basically, it was the girls, so... You know, somebody like Vanessa Del Rio could get like a thousand dollars a day and nobody could touch that. But she was she was such a draw that it was worth flying her in. I can definitely see that. I was just listening to a podcast series and they're talking about the importance of the video box and just how having the starlet on the box was such a major thing. The cover shots actually that that went all the way back to the loops. You know, it was like the cover shot was the most important thing, more important than the film, actually, because it's all in the marketing, you know. So tell me a little bit more about the Amaro brothers and what they were like to work with, because they sound like so creative and just so driven. They were a perfect match, the two brothers from Gloucester, Mass. They had the similar interest in the musical, the MGM musicals, 
but Lem was kind of the technician and John was like the producer. John handled, uh, you know, but he, he also, you know, there were times where he picked up a camera if, if it was necessary, but they both were very film conscious and were very particular about what they, what they put on film. And that was that, you know, I liked that, that they, that they were, you know, they wanted to get the very best, you know, but the two of them together, Plus the other Kurtman and Larue, the the art department. Kurt Kurt was a riot, and he would get and he would be in Chuck's films, he'd be in John Lem's films. You know, the, you're right as far as there was a whole contingency of of talent that uh, evolved around, and it was it was like I thought. It should be because we would all congregate at a bar, a same bar every night and uh, have drinks, you know, for a couple, about two hours, a happy hour kind of thing. And I got a lot of work from that. I got a lot of work from being in the bar. You know, everybody, all of the other producers knew where to go to uh, talk to people. So it, it was um, that's that's how a lot of that evolved. The thing that really got me reading um john amaro's book is all of the times that they were shooting things shooting pickups and sex scenes in their office that were dressed to look like the other locations that's just amazing to me they got a lot of mileage out of that office (laughs) you know they really did but they would you know they would spend a lot of time doing a shot the things that I picked up from them, Mike, were very esoteric things. For instance, they would set up, and some of the shots they would do themselves. But they, they, you know, they would hang the plane uh, when if they needed a plane flying, you know, from California to New York or vice versa. Uh, they would hang the wires on the bottom and shoot it upside down. That was a trick that I thought, wow, that's cool. You know, because how do you hide the monofilament? This is long before computer generated that you could take it out. And they would do things like if the plane was going from New York to California, it would have to go from screen right to left. And then from California to New York would be the reverse from left to right. You know, that was the rule. That was their rule. That's pretty esoteric, you'd have to admit. Well, and to hear of all of the stolen shots that you guys would do, where you would like the whole thing with the uh, the helicopter that you shot in. Yeah, yeah, that was with John. Yeah, the thing was, it was a, it was a different time, and you could steal shots and do that that stuff uh, without having to have permits. The rule, the law was that if you put a tripod on the sidewalk, you had to had to have a permit. So. You know, being being a steady uh, shooter, <clears throat> handheld was critical for a lot of that stuff. But yeah, we stole we stole a lot of shots. They for Blind Ambition, they uh, Lem and John went to went to London and stole shots there. You know, I mean, it was they were worldwide in their thievery. <laughs> yeah. But it was always fun to do that. But then they did some brilliant things. There's a shot. That's um, called uh, uh, supposed to be a nightclub, and uh, there's an exterior shot. I did an exterior shot of the 
Trader Joe's entrance at with the at the plaza in the plaza, and then Lem, you know, and I I darkened out the the top of the frame, and then Lem made Lem made a um a little like the Italian Christmas tree lights. He made a sign uh, that said Che Gauche was the name of the club, and it was you know it was on the screen for a couple of seconds. If you had to do that in opticals, you know, it would be really expensive. But we did it. We did it in camera, took that exposed footage and rolled it back to the beginning. And then, you know, so we had cars going through the frame and the horses and all the different things. You know, they knew how to to um, stretch a dollar till the eagle screamed, as they say, you know, they were good at that. They would do whatever had to be done. That's like doing stealing shots and doing all that stuff. But we also did a lot of legitimate stuff, shooting in in um, hotels and that sort of thing. The RSVP film was uh, one of Playboy's first films for cable. That was like Larue, of course, wrote that, and he and Fabian did the sets, and and you know it was just. Endless circle. You're, you're right as far as like people crossing over to work on other films and stuff. And there, were, unfortunately, there was a young guy. His name was um, anyway. He was one of the first AIDS victims, and you know he helped. He would do script on on their film and then go and direct a film of his own. You know, and there was a lot of that. They would help me on the films I had to do. It was a very interesting time, very interesting time. And of course, at that point, uh, I had, uh, you know, the, when, when Blonde Ambition was shot, X-rated stuff was still illegal. You run the risk of, of getting busted, you know? Uh, so it was always a kind of a, an edge to every shoot, you know? <laughs> you know, are we going to all go away in handcuffs? You know? <laughs> Did you ever get arrested? There were times people got arrested. Yeah, they, they, luckily I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate that I never had any trouble with that, but, uh, you know, I, I got by several close calls that yes, they were out. And then, then, uh, California became even worse. I mean, California was really bad after the, the X market moved out there with the girls and stuff. In the late 80s and early 90s, they, they started cracking down because there was a big industry involved with that. And they had the Adult Film Association, which had some, you know, they had, they actually had some, some power behind them, you know, with lawyers and stuff because uh, all of the, all of the big directors and producers belonged to it. And so they could afford to, uh, you know, get the best lawyers and stuff. And of course, the First Amendment lawyers were the ones that dealt with most of that stuff. It was interesting, Mike, the whole evolution. You know, when I was doing my book, Wham Bam, I was surprised to realize that the outlaw period only lasted from about 68 to about 77 when Jimmy Carter came in and Rehnquist said uh, I don't know how to describe it but I know know it when I see it I'm paraphrasing but that's it so it was it was actually a very kind of short lived but it was very intense very intense you know when I did that with that film fascination first day on the set we had 
those films were done, in, uh, or that film and many, were done in a three-day schedule. First day, uh, one of the PAs came at lunchtime, she, and she said, um, there's some men at the front door. So I went to the, I went to the front door and they said your trucks and cars are you're blocking the driveways around here. I said you you can't. This is not a commercial property. You have to. And they said, well, what 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 are you doing? What kind of film are you shooting? And I said, oh, we're doing a comedy and you know it's a student film and and I said, come on in, you know. So they came in. They they looked around, you know. I mean, they were a little suspicious with the zebra skin bed with a mirror, mirror over top that we had built. But anyway, they they introduced themselves to everybody and they finally said, they said, um, you know, well, you, you guys, you have to stop. And I said, I can't just stop. I said, can you put something in writing? They said, no, you've been warned. And they left. And then the next day they came again at lunchtime. And this time they had a matron with an in uniform police matron in, in uniform, these two detectives, and they came in. <laughs> they were saying, you know, you and I saying, well, you know, I, uh, the producer said he would take the responsibility and stuff. And they came in again and they started introducing. And there was a guy that was living there. So David Rubenstein's house, who was a formidable act uh, uh, performer, I should say. They shook hands with him. Turned out they had the house. The reason they knew we were there was because they had the house staked out. He had embezzled a company up in Mamaroneck for like 30,000 bucks or something. They were laying in wait, you know, and they, they, um, they arrested him and we continued to pretend we were shooting anyway. You know, it was fun because they were they were in, in interviewing this guy in his room and would <laughs> yell for quiet. You know, the dolly grip would say, "What's the move?" I said, "Just keep moving. <laughs> it doesn't matter." You know, and uh, Candida Royale was a uh, Jim Messina were were doing the scene. And I said, "You know, well, just fake it like you know you just got back from your honeymoon and it was terrible." You know, they they went they ad libbed, you know, and the and finally the cops left and we got out of there really quick. And David, uh, whose house it was, said after we left about a half an hour, they came back with warrants. It was one of those things that everybody was there, so I got to do the last shot. Chuck's films always had a grand finale, and I did the last shot, and we got out of there. And then we had to go build the set again down in an apartment in um, Manhattan. And that was, I remember, it it was like we shot 13,000 feet in one day it was like a long day but we did the whole film you know we finished the whole film and it's kind of seamless i mean you can't tell that it was you know so anyway that those are just some of the anecdotes that uh <laughs> that's what that's why i put i had to write a book you know <laughs> stuff in there you know well you've written the two books wham bam Bada boom. Um, and then also life in a film can. Are you going to write a, a third or are we done with, uh, the, the Larry Ravine memoirs? I set out to, to, to the beginning, um, thinking I would do a triptych because, um, I wanted to do the first book was the seventies. Um, the second book was the eighties. And then the third book would be beyond, you know, because after that I did, you know, I shot 
Charlton Heston in Israel, and I, I, I did a commercial with O.J. Simpson, which never, you know, it ran one time, this is after his trial, it ran one time on a TV station and they got death threats. <laughs> it was for some lawyers. He was advertising 1-800-LAW-HELP. They had a good idea, but it, it, it was a, it was really um, before its time. They had bought that. They bought that. The, the, the two lawyers that, that sponsored it had bought that number as soon as AT and T came out with it. You could get the you know a particular number if you wanted to pay extra, and they had it for years before they actually did that. And we finally. Finally went to we went to Bahamas and shot OJ in the Bahamas. They the company I did it for would never tell me what we were gonna do until we got on the plane going down. But we shot it we shot it in the Bahamas because he uh you know, he was liable all any money he made was to go to the Brown family, so he did it down there. He made a little speech at the beginning, said, you know, I'm doing this for these lawyers I mean, how ridiculous. I'm doing this for these lawyers to help people out and stuff. They paid an astronomical fee for the location. It was a friend of his. And so, uh, you know, he got to, he got his money that way. It wasn't given to him directly. That was, that was a wild one. Well, thank you, sir. I hope you have a good rest of the night. Thank you, Mike. I, I, uh, same to you. Coming up next is LaRue Watts. So, LaRue, how did you get into the movie business? Starting even in college, I majored in theater, and so that eventually led to going out to summer stock and then eventually moving to New York where I auditioned for things. And and I got a job with the, the Meadowbrook Dinner Theater. They worked on the star system, and they were located just outside of New York in um, Cedar Grove, New Jersey. And so by working on the star system, I got to work with tons of people that uh, were either on their way up or on their way down. In fact, I made a list here in case you were curious. I worked with Ray Milland and Van Johnson and Tab Hunter and Ann Southern and Terry Moore and Gail Storm and Yvonne DiCarlo and Gary Crosby and Robert Cummings and Robert Q. Lewis and Tony Martin and the list goes on and on. But there are some interesting stories in back of some of those. Like when I did the show with Marilyn Maxwell, she informed me that her good friend Big Chuck was coming that night, and she'd love for me to meet him. So she called me into her dressing room before the show and said, LaRue, this is Big Chuck. And I turned, and sitting in the corner was Rock Hudson. And he said, well, LaRue, I've heard a lot about you. <laughs> you know, It was quite a, quite a shock. <laughs> Anyway, so from there I started writing, and I had a play produced for a limited run at the Lambs Club with uh, Bernadette Peters when she was on her way up. That's kind of how I met John and Lem. There was a little theatrical bar called The Big Spender that everyone hung out at, and I met Lem, the younger brother there first. They knew that I'd written this this play, and so they just approached me if I'd like to get involved with some of their productions. 
And so I did, and the rest is history. (laughs) Was there any hesitation about working with them in the adult world? Well, no, because originally they were just doing what you would call exploitation films. This is before pornography even got started big. And the first couple of things I did with them was one called Bacchanal. And then I even wrote one that they produced called what was originally called The Chest Murders. And then the distributor changed it to Pepper. And that was just pure, a pure and simple low-budget movie. I mean, there was no hanky-panky in it or anything like that. And so then we just became good friends, Lem and then his brother John. And and so I just helped them on all kinds of things. I'd do props on some films and, you know, whatnot. And then this Blonde Ambition came up, and they had the storyline already. And they had the money for the backing. And they said, would you mind writing the screenplay? So I wrote the screenplay. It was originally called White Tie and Tails, their title, and I changed it to Blonde Ambition, and which they bought. So we we filmed the movie in and around New York. Most they went to England and shot some outdoor stuff, but uh, most of it was shot right in New York. So not only are you the writer, but you do so many other things: costumes, set decoration, art direction. I mean, how was it? being involved in all of those different aspects of a production. I loved it. The art direction was was kind of a windfall because I just had always done stuff like that. In fact, there was a time in my life when I was the window designer, you know. But uh, I've always believed that orange is a funny color. So if you look at the film, there's almost orange in half of the scenes, the menus in the restaurant, Chez Gauche, and uh, the curtains even on the airplane. <laughs> I just tried to put orange into every scene because I think it makes people laugh. Now, that's just my theory. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. <laughs> you even get to do a little acting in Blonde Ambition. Yes, I was played, uh, would be totally politically incorrect today, but I played a Chinese chef in the Coyote Fang sequence. <laughs> I was the cook in this little the cafe that the, the the girls were appearing in. So what were some of your memories of working on that Blind Ambition? Well, I think you may know that uh, the choreographer on it was Marianne Niles, who was Bob Fosse's first wife. I remember it never made it into the film, but I remember one time we were shooting and she was doing the, the tapping, which was, you know, appear to be the girls tapping, and she kicked a light bulb out at the footlights. <laughs> it was just a funny moment, but it never made it into the film. <laughs> and the other little tricks along the way I learned, you know, that, that um, if you see the airplane flying through the air, it's just a model, but it's flying, it was photographed upside down with the wire so that you wouldn't look for the wires holding it, because the wires are actually in the frame, they're underneath going down. So it was little tricks like that that was kind of fun to realize and be part of. And I know, too, you had to fight about budget, I'm sure. You didn't have a lot of money to do these things. Yeah, I have no idea what their budget was. I just, you know, I'm sure they were they were very low. And a lot of the kids worked, you know, just for pittance, you know, like all the dancers in Blonde Ambition were mostly Broadway gypsies who were just, you know, between shows or had retired or whatever. And they just did it more as a favor almost. And, you know, they just got whatever they could. 
It was it was just a labor of love all the way around. A lot of our friends were in it and playing one little part or another. It feels like there was a lot of fun that you guys are having. Yeah, we really did. We really did. Uh, and I made a lot of longtime friendships out of it. And now that John has his memoir published, it's all out there for everyone <laughs> to see and hear. <laughs> yeah. LaRue Watts, is that your original name? That's my real name. Well, actually, my first name is Jan. But everyone from the time I was a little kid always called me by my middle name, LaRue. And so that's what's always stuck with me. I've not heard that name. That's fantastic. Well, my mother knew a baseball player named LaRue Fowler, no pun intended, and uh, she liked the name. And she named my other brother LeGrant. So it was an odd bunch of names. What were some of your favorite films to work on over the years? Oh, gosh. Uh, I haven't worked on that many. I mean, I concentrated more on writing. I've had a couple of plays produced around the country and uh, musical, did, as I said, the musical of the Lambs Club. And I had another musical I wrote with Doug Katsiris called Oh Rats that played oh, in um, Eugene, Oregon, and it played in Amarillo, Texas. And, you know, always with the hope of getting it to Broadway, but we never did. So I wasn't really as much involved in film in the whole long run as I was in, in theater. So a Blonde Ambition was just sort of a little side trip along the way. Were you able to work primarily on theater? Or did you have to have a second job to be able to support that? Well, when I was working at Meadowbrook, that was a full-time job. But uh, and once I left there, oh, I bartended for a while and... Uh, and I even ended up in the Christmas business for a while, being a, a decorator of trees that they'd send us all over the country to do trade shows and whatnot. And I worked for them full time for a while. So I've had a, a strange checkered career. <laughs> what are you doing these days? Oh, I'm totally retired. I'm an old man now. I'm 81. So how about you? When is your uh, memoir coming out? Oh, listen, I've been tempted because I've got... I've got a lot of stories about the Meadowbrook days, but I haven't gotten around to it yet. As a matter of fact, strangely enough, I remember when Blonde Ambition came out, we got a review, and one one reviewer, and I couldn't tell you who it was now, said that this should be a Broadway musical. <laughs> and I've always kind of had that in the back of my head, and maybe it should be rethought as a as a funny musical farce. But... As I said, I'm getting too old to start again. Well, I'm glad that uh, your legacy lives on in some of these films that you've worked on and hopefully with some of the plays that you've uh, written as well. Well, thank you. Thank you. Last but not least, I'm joined by John Amaro. So, John, I read American Ecstasy, and I absolutely love your book. Thank you for uh, reading it. It's been quite an experience. I hesitated for many, many years. 
I you know, tell friends stories and regale them with tales of working for the mafia and blah, blah, blah. But I always heard, you should write a book. You should write a book. And uh, you know, I said, easier said than done. You know, But I think it was ultimately uh, Ashley and April, you know, when they met me and then spoke to me, I really thought perhaps I should. I knew I couldn't do it alone. And I can only type with one finger. But they are the ones who really inspired me to do it. It was a long haul, you know, recording and recording and editing and recording. How did a nice boy like you grow up to be an adult film director? I was always, even as a kid, a huge movie fan. And I think because my home life was so insecure and chaotic to a certain extent, my father was a fisherman, but he was away at sea uh, a lot. And then uh, my mother had a nervous breakdown, and so she was in and out of sanitariums. And my escape was the movies. I didn't know exactly what portion of the film industry I wanted to get into, but I knew I wanted to go to New York and make movies. Actually, I thought initially that I would go to California because all the films that I saw primarily way back then, you know, were shot at MGM or Paramount or what have you in LA. But my folks absolutely said, you're not going to California. That's ridiculous. You're too far away, blah, blah, blah. And uh, you can go to New York. <laughs> so my brother had beat me to it by two years. He was two years older than I was. And uh, so he came from Gloucester, Mass, to New York City, and he didn't know a soul. He really had it rough. I mean, he really starved. He got here in 55, I think, and uh, I arrived in 58. I drove out in my old car, and uh, Lem, my brother, was working at Saks Fifth Avenue at the time, and uh, my money lasted, I think I had like $200, and my money lasted a couple of weeks. But I fell in love with the city. I really did. And uh, he got me a job at Saks Fifth Avenue, and the wage was a dollar an hour. You worked 40 hours, and you made $40. But a slice of pizza was $0.10. Cents. So I survived, and I walked to work every day. We lived in a uh, ground-floor apartment off Central Park West. And, of course, uh, the Radio City Music Hall, if you went in before noon, I think it was $0.65 cents for a first-run film, usually MGM, and a stage show. So somehow I survived. But after two or three months at Saks Fifth Avenue, I literally was walking by CBS's building on Madison Avenue. And I don't know why, because I didn't know a soul there. But I just looked on the directory and uh, for the personnel department, as they called it then. This was before human resources. And I went up, and there was an opening in the mailroom. And right then and there, while I was on my lunch break from Saks, I filled out the application, and I couldn't believe this. I said, wow, I'm, I'm in the CBS building. So uh, I went back to Saks. I told Lem uh, what I had done, and he said, uh, you know, well, good luck. But another week, and I heard from them. So I quit Saks. They were not 
thrilled about that. And I went to work for a little more money <laughs> at uh, CBS in the mailroom. And that was the beginning. Uh, and uh, after CBS, I got into editing. And uh, then I discovered that although ABC was considered the third place network at the time, they were paying more and you would could possibly get to work on 35 millimeter prints and not just 16 millimeter. This was before video and what have you. So I jumped ship and went to ABC. At ABC, I met my first partner, Mike Finlay. He was in the shipping department, and he knew a lot more about editing than I did, but we kind of learned on the job. And uh, my brother at that point really was a theater buff, and he was a stage manager after he left Saks. But, you know, we were still basically starving. But we just love film and new films, old films. But the one thing I really objected to were these theaters, these movie theaters on 42nd Street uh, and on Broadway, actually, that showed what were known as exploitation films. These were very, very lurid fronts uh, that they put on the, the theaters showing um, white slavery and uh, call girls and what have you. I was just horrified, and I wouldn't even uh, stand under the marquee. My brother would always say, let's go over and look at the marquee and the, and, and the boards, as they were called, for this uh, theater, and they'd be a film like Sinew Sinners or White Slaves of Chinatown. And uh, extremely exploitive. But they were on Broadway, and they were legit movie houses, but I just was, I was appalled. But on the other hand, I thought, you know, I really want to get into filmmaking. I can't afford to go to NYU film school, even though I did do one semester at uh, NYU. And my uh, partner, Mike Finlay, at the time, was feeling the same way. And we talk about film and film production for weeks, months, probably even a year, until we finally thought maybe we could make an exploitation film because we actually went to see a couple of them. And uh, he dragged me in. I didn't want to go. And I really wasn't shocked. It wasn't that. But my upbringing was so puritanical. My family, they didn't smoke. They didn't drink. Well, on the Firth, Firth F-I-R-T-H, side of the family. On the Amero side, it was a little, they smoked, they drank, as I always said, and they were Democrats. And on the other side, they didn't smoke, drink, and they were all Republicans. And I guess I was pretty uptight and conservative at the time. But I saw a way here. I said, one could make a feature film if one could raise a very small amount of money, and you could come up with a script that was uh, exploitive. You had to exploit something. But there was a New York censor who was extremely strict back then, and every film that showed in New York had to have a seal uh, of the New York State censor. So if you wanted to give the audience just a little TNA, as we called it, tits and ass, you had to be extremely careful. You could only film stories where a girl might take a shower or she might swim in a lake in the nude. Uh, you could not 
ever have, uh, you know, a guy and a gal in bed together, period. I mean, even if they were dressed. So it was very difficult, you know, to come up with a plot line where you could give the audience what we thought they wanted at the time and uh, still not, uh, you know, offend. So it was tough, but we decided, uh, Mike Finley and myself, that we would try to write a script. And we did. It was called The Sins of a White Slaver initially. Mike and I were both still working at ABC uh, full time. So we literally shot that feature on weekends. It was shot on 35 millimeter and it was black and white, of course. And uh, Mike's wife, Roberta Finlay, uh, was one of the leads. And then we suckered my brother into playing one of the leads also because we had, we had no money. The budget was minuscule. But I got the bright idea for production value. I said, why don't we go up to Gloucester? And I know this wonderful old mansion up there. And Lem, my brother, uh, could own it. And we could shoot up there. And it wouldn't cost us a dime. We can all stay at my grandmother's house and what have you, never really thinking about the ramifications of this. I mean, you know, what were we going to tell her we were doing? But we did, and uh, we got some uh, some footage, not spectacular, I would say. And then we finished the film here back in New York, and there's a big fight on the beach at Coney Island uh, at the conclusion of the film where uh, Mike... Uh, strangles Lem and, uh, and he dies in the waves on the beach at Coney Island. And, uh, he, and Mike and Roberta walk off into the sunset, uh, him uh, having saved her from a fate worse than death. That was the first film. When you were working with your brother in a co-directing situation, what was that relationship like? I always considered myself the producer. I left the directing to Lem. I thought he was much he just had a sixth sense of what would work, uh, what would cut together easily. And uh, so even though we really did co-direct most of the films, or we would at least discuss before anybody said action, uh, what we hope to accomplish in this scene. And it was, uh, but it was clearly understood that Lem was going to be the editor also. But again, I would be his assistant primarily in the beginning when I started working with with the Lem. I acted as the producer. I paid the bills. I raised the money. You know, I paid the actors. I found the actors, and uh, and I loved doing it. It really was uh, fun. But on some films, I also directed. It depended on the on the film and what the budget was and how difficult the scene was. Some films were easier than others, but they were all difficult. It was always a struggle because the budgets were so minuscule and we were making every effort to make them look better, hoping that people would think, hoping the distributors would think they cost a lot more, even though we'd always inflate the budget where they'd always say, oh, you know, what did this cost? And we said, oh, it's 50000 you know, and of course we spent twelve. It was tough, but uh, Lem and I, uh, we got along well. Uh, we we would disagree, but usually the disagreements were before 
the camera rolled. Uh, he wasn't as commercially minded, I guess, as I was. I was always looking out for, is a distributor going to find this acceptable for his type of theaters or whatever it might, might be? Is there enough sex in it? Even though there's hardly any sex in the exploitation films, it was, you know, it was at least 60% plot and story because you, you couldn't do any more than that. Kids today, they don't understand. They, I was talking to a, my barber the other day, and he thought that hardcore just went back to the dawn of film. And I said, uh, I said, no, 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 no. Hardcore, and I said, that's what you call porno, did not arrive until the 70s. I said, surely you remember Deep Throat? And he said, no, I never heard of it. And I thought, oh, my God, yeah. I felt 110, but it's it's true. And uh, I enjoyed the exploitation films because I felt I'm learning filmmaking, as is Lem, and um, I'm sure Mike and Roberta felt the same way. But my naivete, wow, I never really dreamed that the government or the state government or the city would ever allow hardcore ex explicit sex in a film. And so my goal, our goals, I would say, would be to uh, become more polished as filmmakers. I love shooting on 35, and I loved every aspect of it. Sometimes I was the sound man. Sometimes I was the prop guy. Sometimes I drove the truck. I mean, we had, we'd have a crew of four and uh, and good friends of ours, like LaRue Watts, uh, who was a playwright, but he loved film, and we kind of shanghaied uh, LaRue and his partner, and they became sets, costumes, makeup, and another good friend, Kurt Mann, who was an actor and uh, a professional who had been with the Jewel Box Review, a uh, drag review that toured the country. Uh, but he was a film buff. So uh, it became a little like a stock company, and it was great. But uh, but they did everything, literally. I had no grips. I had no gaffers, really, in, in the beginning. And they would schlep equipment and costumes and what have you. That was very enjoyable. But I never, ever dreamed, I would have bet money, that the government would never allow explicit sex uh, in theaters to the general public. And so I was hoping that we could segue from exploitation films into low-budget features. I, I loved uh, you know, all the noir the films, and I love suspense. Hitchcock was my favorite director, and uh, so I, I was hoping that we could just get up to an R-rated script, and uh, with, of course, more money and, you know, bigger investors and what have you. So the trap really uh, happened when, on that fateful day, as I say in my book, a friend called and said, come up uh, to 8th Avenue immediately to the Tivoli Theater. You're not going to believe what's on screen at this huge old movie house. And we stood at the back of the theater. We we knew the owners of the theater. And there for the first time on this giant screen, 
there was explicit sex. And I thought, oh, my God, we're going to be arrested right here now, just standing at the back of the theater. Because I just said, wow, I mean, this guy has the balls of a brass monkey. Is he crazy? And so, you know, the rest, as they say, is uh, history. But I went back down to our editing room, and we, with our own funds, had shot Bacchanal. And it was a softcore film. And I said, Lem, we're in deep doo-doo because no one is going to show this film. We'll never find a distributor without doing inserts and so and this was the, this was the beginning of the, of the trap to a certain extent the uh, money trap in that I said we're going to look now our total investment in Bacchanal was maybe $20,000 or less I suppose but it was half color half black and white and uh, it's a fantasy so we had fun building sets in our little studio on 22nd Street in Manhattan and but we had to go out and find performers. We didn't know a soul who was involved in the X-rated uh, business. And strangely enough, we met Harry Reams, whose real name was Herb Stryker, of Deep Throat fame. And I said, well, maybe, you know, uh, he would be willing to do these inserts. You're never going to see his face. So I said, I mean, how much could he ask for, right? So uh, he did. And uh, that was kind of the beginning. We finished the film, and we got distribution, and it, it made money. And at that point, I think any film that had actual explicit sex in it made money. And so we uh, we opened on Broadway at the Circus Cinema. Matter of fact, uh, the cover of my book, American Ecstasy, has a shot of the marquee. And that marquee that's, that's on the cover, I'm telling you, is as big as the theater. It had been a jewelry uh, store on Broadway, and they turned it into an ex-theater when they saw, you know, that this really was going to explode, and, and it did, but it always cracked me up because the sidewalk on Broadway at that particular point around 50th Street is extremely wide, so you could make a marquee right out to the curb, and I, I always thought that marquee is as big as the entire theater inside. So that was the money trap in that the money was good, and the next offer we had, uh, financially uh, speaking, was to make another X-rated film. And so I said, well, all right, you know, I guess we can do another one. We'll, we'll do one more. But we've got to seriously get down to finding or having someone write a really good R-rated. I was thinking in terms of a James Bond ripoff, uh, which was what Pepper was which was a disastrous shoot because we were trying to do too much with with too little funding and uh, and a, a money man that was very difficult to work with. He was one of the uh, men who put together the Circus Cinema on Broadway, and that's how we met when they wanted to uh, open the theater with uh, Bacchanal. I'm so curious about the timeline when it comes to Blind Ambition, because I understood it took a while to complete. I'm not good on dates. 
we found, or he found us, a Swedish investor, Shell Nielsen, and uh, a wonderful, delightful Swede who came over here to buy product for his theaters because he supplied theaters in Stockholm. Well, not just Stockholm, but all over Sweden. And at that point, I was working for fronting for Mickey Zaffirano, the uh, the uh, gangster. He was based on the West Coast, but I basically was running the New York operation with Kurt as my secretary. And it was a lot of fun. It really was. And, you know, thinking about it now, I mean, I could have been arrested and I could have gone to prison. But it was fun. And it wasn't until I realized how involved Mickey Zaffirano was and his cronies would come in showing me their guns and what what have you. I said to Lem, I said, I've got to gracefully try to get out of this job. He was thrilled. The money was was great. But I was I was doing crazy things. Uh, I became kind of a bag lady in that uh, in I I tell in the book the story about him asking me to to fly to Boston and meet a man in a green Cadillac. He didn't even tell me his name. And he said, go to the parking lot at Logan Airport and you'll see a green cat Cadillac. I said, okay. And he said, uh, I said, well, what's the guy's name or, you know, what's his phony name? And he said, it doesn't make any difference. He, he knows you're coming and blah, 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 and all that. I was terrified of flying at that point. So I got to the airport, uh, here in New York early, went to the bar, got slightly hammered. And then I bought an attache case with me because I knew I was picking up cash. An awful lot of business was done in cash, obviously. And so it's freezing cold. I get to the parking lot, which is pretty much deserted, and there's this strangely colored green Cadillac. So I just walk over, and the guy's opening the door. I get in. I sit down. And there's this, like, brown bag that looked like a Dunkin' Donuts bag stuff with money and the guy says doesn't say that he said you're gonna count it and i said are you kidding i mean now i had a few drinks also which i thought was very funny and he said well you're gonna have to sign for it and i so i said this is insane because i kind of looked in the bag and it was all in fives tens and twenties and it's obviously right from the box office of theaters I really had no no idea how how much money it wasn't. And Mickey in New York had never said, pick up 50 grand or you're going to get this, so do this or blah, blah, blah. So I remember signing, I think I signed Joan Crawford, who I was a big fan of at the time. I said, yes, all right, it's been a pleasure doing business with you. And uh, I got out, I stuck it under my heavy, heavy coat went to the men's room at Logan uh, Airport and transferred it to this black attache case that I had purchased, went directly to the bar again, got hammered, got on the Eastern shuttle, which flew back and forth in an hour or so. During the takeoff, I had the uh, attache case on my lap and, you know, really didn't want to put it in the overhead or anything like that (laughs) as we're taking off. The uh, stewardess uh, came up the aisle and said, sir, sir, you can't have that in your lap. Put it under your seat. 
And I said, oh, no, all right. And so I, I did. And it was a real bumpy takeoff, and it was rough for the first, like, 15 to 20 minutes. Now, this is a prop plane. This is no jet, so we're getting banged around pretty good. And suddenly I look down, and the briefcase is gone. So I undo my seatbelt, and we're still in the ascent. And I start crawling on all fours up the aisle, and I see that it had slipped all the way down to a woman in, like, three seats down on the aisle. So I said, oh, my God. And so now the the stewardess has seen me. And so she's running up the aisle saying, sir, sir, you've got to get back to your seat, blah, 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 blah. And I said, my briefcase, my, my briefcase. And it's between this woman's legs. And she's not really paying attention. But she certainly did when I'm kind of pushing her legs apart to get the briefcase out. So she says, like, what the fuck is going on here? And the stewardess is yelling at me. So I grabbed the briefcase. I said, it's me. I'm after my briefcase. I'm after my briefcase. She said, get back to your seat, blah, blah, blah. So I did, and uh, I strapped myself in. And when I got back, of course, to LaGuardia, I think I probably headed right to the bar again. But I survived. But it it, it was uh, escapades like that that uh, that were fun to tell friends after it was over. But I was really, really, uh, you know, terrified. But and that's when I said I can't work with these guys anymore. And I just kept hearing more and more stories. And one day, walking to work, I picked up the New York Times, which I did every day. And there's Mickey's picture, like on the front page. And so I'm reading more about him, and I said, that doesn't, I walked in the office, and he happened to be in his office, which is right next to mine, and uh, I said, nice picture, you know, and he said, oh, you're a funny kid. They got a kick out of me, I got a kick out of them, and they all had Damon Runyon, Guys and Dolls type names. And it was Louis the something and somebody the this or, you know, or Fat Tony or some such thing. But the worst is they'd call and they expected you to know who they were. And so Kurt would take the calls because he was out front in the outer office. And uh, they'd say, yeah, hi. Yeah, listen, is he there? Kurt would say, uh, and he was told, I said, don't ever say anybody's name. And so Kurt would look at me, because I could see him from my office, and Kurt said, it's driving me crazy. Who do you want? Which, you know, which one of them? But it really was, it was kind of fun, and Kurt and I treated it like we were in a gangster movie. But it wasn't so much fun, you know, when the guns started uh, being uh, uh, shown around. And I said, Mickey, you can't get away with that in New York City. You know, you can do it in L.A., perhaps, or Vegas, but not here. And I told him about this investor, the Swede, because the guy, I was giving Mickey business. I was selling him tons of 16-millimeter loops which basically was the business that uh, Zaffirano was in, because the minute he'd seen Deep Throat take off, that's when the mob got into it. And uh, so I, 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 t- I told him the truth. I said, this guy has been great. Uh, he's bought a lot of product from us. That means Mickey. And I said, but, you know, he wants me to make a feature for him. 
and that he can he wants to get into the distribution business in Sweden. And I said, so I think I'm going to have to you know give my notice and blah 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 because he's putting up a lot of money and all that. And so that's how I got out of the mob, and we started working on a film that uh, Larue. It was Lem and I had this idea. Let's do a ripoff of two of our favorite films, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and How to Marry a Millionaire. And then LaRue, who was a playwright, we said, and let's get LaRue to do this script. It's going to be a comedy and what have you. And so uh, that's how we got started. But it took forever also because uh, we had Shell Nielsen, the backer, the Swedish Backer said, I'm going to uh, open an office right here in the equity building on Broadway with you guys. That's where Norm Arno and Zeffirano uh, had their office. So we took a suite of three rooms on the fifth floor at 46 in Broadway, uh, and it's spectacular. And uh, Shell would use that as his office when he was in New York, and we were splitting the rent with him, and it didn't seem to be exorbitant at the time. Bob Sumner at Mature Pictures uh, picked up Every Inch of Lady for, dis- for distribution. And Shell, having seen the film and how much money it was making uh, around the country here, did come to Lem and myself and uh, wanted a feature you know, that he could own. And that's how Blonde Ambition got started. There's that English connection with Susie Mandel. Why England? Well, we had a little money then, and uh, after LaRue had, or we all had agreed on the script, there's several things. Lem and I were very selfish, and we were very fortunate that people, once they gave us the financing, left us alone pretty much to do whatever we wanted to do. Now, we know we had to deliver a film that was either R-rated or X-rated or what have you. But as far as the plot and the casting, with few exceptions, they left us totally on our own. So one of the things I had always wanted to do was I love London, and we had been over there a lot. And I said, why don't we go to London? And I'll, I used to be a cameraman also, obviously, and uh, let's you and uh, and I will shoot the mansion. We'll shoot some stuff in the country, and we'll cast for the two leads in London. Lem thought that was a good idea, and uh, it wouldn't cost a fortune. And and we we knew London pretty much. Over we went. The problem was that um, we cast, and uh, Susie was a delight. She was fine, but she made it very clear that she wasn't going to do uh, hardcore. She read the script and didn't have a problem and had no problem with it appearing that she was doing explicit sex, but she wasn't going to do it. And we we liked her so much, and uh, she was fun, and we said, um, we're going to add inserts, and uh, she made it very clear in the contract that we... Uh, signed with her and her partner at the time and her l- lawyer that it was going to appear that uh, you know she was performing this herself and so you know she was she was wonderful 
uh, with it because she felt, oh, everyone will know that I didn't really do it. But due to Lem's great editing and um, my camera work on the inserts, her boyfriend at the time was appalled when he saw the film because he said, you're telling me that that's not you, and that's not your parts and all this stuff. I said, no, no, it's not. But the our next problem was, so we, we had Susie signed, but the, the second girl that we really liked, because they had to be able to sing and dance and have a sense of humor also. The second girl was good. She had a lot of legit credits, and she was coming around, and we weren't talking her into anything but her boyfriend uh, objected strenuously when she told him so we didn't pursue it the two gals i wanted uh, here in in new york one was gloria leonard who was older and she was the publisher of uh, high society magazine i can't think of who the other gal was but uh, so we came back and we had a signed contract with uh, susie and some good footage, mainly because we just wanted to go and shoot in, in London. We wanted to have it processed at uh, Technicolor in London. So that was kind of a, a bucket list thing that I'd always wanted to do. And I always wanted to shoot around Big Ben and just wait for it to strike 12. And uh, the Bobbies never gave us a bit of trouble. I set up my tripod, you know, and the whole business. And it was great. And another thing I'd always wanted to do, I love backdrops in Hollywood films, painted backdrops. And uh, I had several books on the art of these giant backdrops and what have you. And so I commissioned an artist that I'd been told about in Boston to paint a, oh, I don't know, 30 by whatever of a southern mansion. And there's a sequence in the film where we do a thing on Gone with the Wind. So he did a great job. I sent him an 8x10 photo of a very well-known mansion down in Mississippi. You see it in films all the time. And uh, I gave him the dimensions, and we agreed on a price. And he shipped it to me on a Greyhound bus. I remember going down to get it. It looked great. And I got the biggest kick out of that. Lem and I had always wanted to do our own special effects, and so there's a model plane that we made and uh, we shot in our office, which I'm very proud of because you can't see the wires because we shot it, we hung it upside down. Everyone always looks for anything holding something up above it, you know, and then we just flip the negative. So that was a lot of fun. We we used our offices on 46th Street almost like a studio uh, in that any time we needed inserts for anything, that's where we shot. But also that's what took us so long to get through Blonde Ambition is because, number one, we had to reconstruct these little mini sets to do a lot of inserts. And uh, Shell, our backer in Sweden, was so overextended in that uh, he kept getting into trouble with the government and uh, having financial problems. And I knew things were getting bad when he always stayed at the Edison Hotel right in Times Square. And now when he was coming over for his monthly visit, we let him sleep on the floor 
in the office. We had a huge front room that overlooked Broadway, the editing room, which is where Lem and I did most of our work, an outer office, and then another small office uh, up front. And there was a you know a key to the, to the John and everything on the fifth floor. It was it was a nice building. So he was living there, and I said to Lem, "This doesn't look good at all." Yeah, but even though it took him forever. He never screwed us in any way other than the fact that uh, everybody was wasting a lot of money because, you know, he was still paying half the rent. And uh, also he knew that we weren't robbing him blind or anything because the books were always there for him to to see. And he loved the footage. It's just that uh, it was just taking a very long time. So I and I can't believe it took as long as it did. I wasn't I I wasn't aware of it until I looked at the date on the invitation when we first screened it at the MGM screening room here in New York. Every insane thing that can happen on a shoot happened on the Blonde Ambition shoot. Not bad things, just uh, difficult things and uh, like just trying to shoot the Gone with the Wind sequence with uh, the six guys and six gals, you know, all getting it off together. I mean, hello. Thank God for Lem's uh, editing skills. But it's it's one of the scenes in the film when it uh, played in uh, London at the Prince Charles Cinema, it got applause at the end, which uh, I was uh, happy to see. It was hard work, but we loved it. We got to do, film-wise, just all kinds of fun stuff, doing opticals in the camera, doing multiple dissolves. Even in Bacchanal, I always wanted to do a glass shot, what I call a glass shot, and although it's pretty crude, but it's where you uh, block off the top half of the frame, you know, with mountains, with a glass rendering of mountains, and you're shooting it just on a, a, a grassy place outside, and it's like a wedge that comes down, and so it looks like you're in the Rockies. We had a little tacky cave set in Bacchanal, and it was literally, I think Variety reviewed it, called it a paper mache jubilee. We built this cave set in our studio on 22nd Street. There's dripping water and blah, 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 and all this. But I wanted to have all these hanging stalactites and stalagmites, and I found a great 8 by 10 still of exactly what I wanted. So we carefully cut it out and then matted it over the top of the uh, lens so that it blocked out all the bad stuff, like, you know, what all the stuff that was above the set in our studio, and then uh, shot it. And uh, enough of it was, was good enough. So I said, no, let's let's use it. That's the kind of thing that, that we we enjoyed. We just, we, we, we love to experiment and just try things. On that level, it was, if we got... 50% of what we wanted, uh, you know, we were ha- happy. I think the, the, the Amero brothers differed from the other uh, X-rated filmmakers at the time because our films weren't erotic. They were uh, fun. They were amusing. The sex was there because it had to be there. 
and we just uh, love filmmaking. I don't have any regrets, but the turning point for us was when uh, uh, Hardcore came in, in that it took a lot of the fun out of seeing what you could get away with, what the censor could the girl start to turn around when she was showering? How far could she walk out of the lake before they would say, no, 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 you have to cut? The exploitation films were a lot of fun to make. When you're working with LaRue, I imagine you provide the initial idea and he goes off to write it. Is there more of a back and forth after that initial draft? We know LaRue's work. He wrote a, remember he wrote a show for Bernadette Peters based on the Pied Piper of Hamlin, which was called Oh Rats. And it was a musical where LaRue did the uh, book. And he had a, a wicked sense of humor. Uh, and of course, he knew gentlemen prefer blondes and how to marry a millionaire. And he knew us so well that he knew what we wanted. But no, I think I think once the three of us agreed on the on the basic plot structure, two girls with this no talent act looking to marry uh, wealthy men, just certain things that we knew from the get go. There's going to be a, seg- a segment in London, and there's going to be a spoof of Gone with the Wind. That was my idea, I think, so I could do a painted backdrop. But no, I don't think I don't think we had that many conferences. No, we we sent him off, and I think what he came back with was basically what we used. He was there all the time because he was also you know doing sets and costumes. So if there were changes or lines didn't work, you know, uh, I mean uh, some some actors were dubbed because they weren't you know, very good. We would change the line here and there, but, uh, but, uh, LaRue was always aware of it. And, uh, you know, so, but it's, it's hard because LaRue has a very funny sense of humor and, uh, some of it, the actors just couldn't sell it, but it was fun. And, uh, LaRue was great to work with. Uh, and he, God, he did everything. That's one of the things about Blonde Ambition that I really like, is that you seem to favor actors who could actually act. We knew Jamie from way back, uh, and he was in uh, Dynamite, of course. But I initially wanted, uh, for that cameo, I thought it would be fun and a, a kind of an industry-in thing to uh, have uh, Harry Reams as the director. And the and I called Harry, and we had worked with him on Every Inch of Lady. But he wanted so much money. I said, Harry, it's one day. I said, it'll be one long day. And it's fun. I said, because I think the audience would get a kick out of seeing you as the director. I was willing to pay more, of course, but he just wanted too much. Now, I can't even quote what it is now. So I said, no, I just, this is ridiculous. You know, it's not like he's performing. So our second choice was uh, was Jamie, and uh, who we knew also. So he said, "Oh, sure, yeah, no problem." And he was great; he really was. That worked out very well. It was a very long day. I mean, we shot that whole thing in one day, and it was just getting the girls ready, and then getting the guys ready, and then all the other stuff in between. It was uh, a long, a long day, I will say. 
But again, that studio we used, we also did the barn scene and we had a real horse there when Susie and Dory um, finished their act. But what the actors though didn't know that later on, the back of the barn was the jail that I was renting those flats and there was nothing in the contract that said that I couldn't use them for two sets. So the the back of the barn, which LaRue and uh, Fabian had painted and tons of hay and everything. And then we had, uh, we had to make a decent stall for the horse because the trainer came with them and all that. But the problem was that when we did the jail scene and all the leather guys are in there and everything, the horse would uh, take a leak and it would just drain right into the jail set. I had some very unhappy actors uh, for a while until I said to the uh, trainer, I said, take the horse out on 85th Street for a long walk while I finish this segment. But I'll never forget that. Were there ever any problems getting adult or the exploitation films developed? Or were there known places that handled more sensitive images? There were problems. There were certain labs. In the beginning, uh, as far as the exploitation films went, uh, during the 60s and right up until about 70, 71 or 2, there was no problem whatsoever. But when they realized that they were being given uh, explicit materials to develop and print, of course, they'd have to look at it. Somehow, I think people, other filmmakers, steered us. We tended to use uh, the same lab. I think, um, well, actually, we used <laughs> Cinefax, then, which became Technicolor, and we, we knew someone there, and we did an awful lot of uh, processing work there. It was only two blocks from our office. But I never remember, recall, or reading about, like, a raid on a, on a lab for having X-rated materials. It was hard enough to make a, a lawsuit with closing theater down. The time that I was arrested, which is in the book, at the World Theater, you couldn't close the theater down. What you could do is confiscate the print, arrest the manager, and then it would have to go to court. But... We kept another print hidden in the Coke machine in the theater. And the minute the police dragged the manager away and the print, then the projectionist just came down and brought the other print up to the projection booth and the show rolled again because until it went to court, you couldn't do anything, even though, I mean, it wasn't any fun being arrested. But I knew that I probably, I was arrested twice, actually, but I did not want to have a record. So when the when the lawyers suggested I take a misdemeanor, I wouldn't even do that. I said, no, we'll just keep going until we get the right judge. And there was so much corruption. And, uh, of course, our lawyer was, well, you know, what can I say? But, no, I have no uh, record. And I tried to get my mugshots back and to put them in the book. Uh, because I got my fingerprints back, but I could never get the mugshots back. They claim that they destroyed them if you don't have a record, and I don't. But I thought it would have been fun to have those uh, in the uh, book. But, uh, yeah, it was, of course, now a lot of this would trickle down 
to the Gloucester Daily Times in my hometown. And uh, that was becoming somewhat of a an issue because my grandmother, you know, would get calls and women would say, you know, I saw in Boston that uh, a filmmaker named John Amaro, his movie was, uh, you know, censored, blah, blah, blah. So finally, you know, I when I went up for Christmas, when Lem and I went up for Christmas, we took her aside, and she was she was so cool. Uh, at one point, now we didn't tell it was hardcore. We just said these are you know films that have sex in them that you would not approve of, and blah blah blah. But she couldn't imagine hardcore. I mean, but she did say one funny thing. She said at one point, she said do you actually make money making these films? And I said, uh, yeah, Graham, we, we, we're, we're doing okay. And uh, she said, well, I don't approve, but just don't tell anyone, which I always thought was fun. But no, we never told her the whole story. I mean, uh, and fortunately, there was no uh, movie houses in Gloucester or anywhere around there. Uh, that showed X-rated material. I think you had to go to uh, get a little closer to Boston. <laughs> when you're doing the work and you're working long, late hours in some dingy, you know, horrible bar, I mean, for some of the films that I worked on for other people, um, including, you know, Mike and Roberta, Jack Brobman, and when we weren't doing our own films, uh, you know, I'd say, yeah, sure, do you want to direct this or produce this? And boy, some of the shoots would go on till four and five in the morning. I mean, it was just unbelievable. As long as they were fun, if they were fun people, then, uh, I kind of enjoyed it, uh, but, uh, other times, not so much because the filmmakers themselves were, I found, a pretty dreary bunch. You know, their attitude was not what the Amaro brothers <laughs> was. Tell me a little bit more about the versions of Blonde Ambition. Tell me about the R-rated version. I don't know whether I've ever seen it, but I know that I was working for a short period of time for um, an outfit called Home Dish Satellite Networks. Paul Klein, and he was supplying programming to satellite dish owners all over the country uh, who who couldn't get cable. In other words, this was 89 or 90 or something. And uh, he told me that he had run the R-rated version of Blonde Ambition. Now, I didn't cut it. I mean, Lem didn't cut it. Lem made the soft version of uh, Blonde. But uh, I can't imagine it was so tame to begin with. I mean, the, the, the first 10 minutes, the first reel, as we call it, a blonde, there's, there's no sex period. It was all just plot development. I don't know. I have no idea who cut that down to an R. I mean, uh, it would be very difficult. But I, I've never seen it. I assume it must exist. But, uh, you know, I, I don't like uh, the uh, soft versions of films that were you know, intended to be hardcore. You know? it's, it's ridiculous. You know, the sex scenes, just they go on long enough as it is. They go on too long, you know, as far as I'm concerned. But, um, you know, you, again, it's 
a question of uh, the distributor and the financing and you know who you can and who the performers are but uh, no and i don't have i don't have any desire to see it really it must be very short how was blonde ambition received when it came out good we we held a big big screening for the magazines and for a lot of the actors and for friends and i think we had about uh, yeah maybe 50 the biggest screening one was like set 50 i think that was the mgm one but we got a lot of press and not from you know we're not talking the new york times here but i mean from all the men's magazines they liked it because of the plot and the silliness of it and the very fact that any filmmaker making an X-rated film would go to all the trouble to build sets and do a production number and and have the girls doing a little thing out in Coyote Fang, Wyoming. You know, many articles were uh, were written. Yeah, I think that that got the 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 most press of any film we ever made. We took full-page ads in Variety for uh, Every Inch a Lady. I remember we took one uh, for with uh, Dobby Lloyd Rains, and then we did another one with Harry Reams, I think. So we must have, I mean, a full-page in Variety, you know, cost thousands back then. I mean, I mean even back then. So uh, we we must have, you know, thought we were on onto something. That opened at the World Theater uh, all, also. And then we were sued by the distributor of The Corporate Queen, which was an exploitation film we made. And basically, it's true. I wrote the script for The Corporate Queen. And then when it came time for Every Inch of Lady, I said to Lem, I said, you know, I'm just going to lift the plot from The Corporate Queen, basically. It's kind of a fun story. And, she, you know, she blows them all up at the end. And we can build a little model of the apartment house blowing up and all this stuff. And uh, so Lem said, sure, you know, go, go ahead. So we re- revamped the thing, you know, and we had a little more money to spend. And the next thing you know, fade out, fade in. Six months later, I get a lawyer's letter from Times Film, who was the distributor of the Corporate Queen, uh, saying cease and desist and that we own the rights to blah, 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 blah. And uh, I knew the, uh, the owners. So I just called their bluff. And uh, I composed the letter. And towards the uh, end of the letter, I said the magic words that seemed to work. I said, as distasteful as a lawsuit uh, would be and the ensuing publicity for Times Film. You know, I hope that we can come to some blah, blah, blah. And I never heard another word from them. (laughs) That was it. So they just, because they had a subsidiary company called Victoria Films, and that's who Every Inch of Lady went out under, you know, for foreign sales and blah, blah, blah. But it was really Times film the legitimate uh art house distributor you know and everybody knew it so uh but i can't believe that uh you know that uh felix would uh would actually uh you know cause that's the only time we were threatened with any kind of uh legal action that i can remember <laughs> how has your memoir been received i you know, well i'm thrilled and delighted 
when, uh, you know, it took forever, it seemed to me, to uh, get it together. Initially, I had said to um, whoever would listen, I said, I've got this great title. I want to call it uh, From Pawn to Prime Time, My 30-Year Search for a Happy Ending. And everyone said, oh, great, 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 great. And uh, But then even the first publisher said, I'm a little afraid of the word porn. And he said, I've read the book and I like it. And uh, he said, but I think that's going to limit your audience uh, too much. And so I thought about it and uh, I said, okay. I said, is there anything else? I said, I'll start thinking about a title. And he said, well, you've got to give me releases from everybody who's in the book. And I said, well, 80% of them are dead, but Yoko Ono isn't dead, and you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, there is no way that Yoko Ono is going to sign a release, and there's no way that she's going to sue anyway. But, you know, I'm talking to a publisher, and, you know, what do I know? So they were great. They were extremely enthusiastic, but they wouldn't back down on the release and uh, and I couldn't even get in touch with some of the people you know, who were in the book. I didn't know whether they were dead or alive. God love uh, Harry in uh, Fab Press uh, because uh, he didn't worry about releases, and uh, he was very enthusiastic about the book. But he said the same thing. He said, "You got to come up with a, a different title." Because again, uh, the porn will limit it too too much. So I so then I said, oh, I guess I really have to because I kind of liked it because it was my idea. And so one day, so one day I was thinking about Home Dish Satellite that I had to work for writing these program guides and reviewing films and things. One of the ser- services that we offered, we offered G-rated stuff, just like a poor man's, uh, you know, Showtime. And then Tuxedo Network was the softcore R-rated stuff. And then American Ecstasy was the hardcore stuff. And American Ecstasy is where all the money came from because nobody who wants Tuxedo Network, you know, uh, when you can have the real thing. But it's the real thing that got Paul Klein and the whole company shut down. But I never forgot American Ecstasy because I worked on the guides. We used to put out a monthly guide and of what was on the plots. And I had to screen all these films because we made sure that there was never any violence or rape or, you know, or sadism or stuff like that. So anyway, that popped into my head. And I thought, well, you know, you could call it, we could call it American Ecstasy with three X's, and that would say it, I guess, to anybody who is in the know. And then the tagline, uh, my 30-year search for a happy ending, if that doesn't say something, you know. Uh, but the um, Fab Press uh, liked it, and everybody else did. So uh, that's uh, how it uh, came about. But in the beginning, I was uh, apprehensive because it covers so much, you know, uh, including, you know, when my brother passed uh, and my partner passed. And uh, when I was looking at Blonde Ambition the other day, I said, 
uh, as the film is going on, and I'm saying, oh, I really like what I did there. But then I'm saying, he's dead. He's dead. She's dead. He's, you know, really. And uh, it was like, you know, but you can't dwell on it. I mean, you know, and fortunately, we got along great. Lem and I got along great with just about everybody that we worked with. And they always enjoyed, you know, when we call and say, can you do a day's work? And do you want to do this or blah, blah, blah. It was just so varied because uh, I made a whole bunch of gay features uh, under the pseudonym Francis Ellie. Francis was Michael Finlay's middle name, and my middle name is Ellsworth, uh, so that's where the Ellie came from. Uh, and uh, those were uh, kind of a story themselves in that they were shot sometimes in one day. And uh, I wrote all the scripts and, uh, and cast all the actors, and uh, and literally those films were made with a crew of three. That's uh, in the beginning it was Mike Finley, myself. In the beginning, actually, it was just Mike Finley and myself. And then when Michael was killed, uh, I asked Lem, who had turned down. Uh, <laughs> any interest in it uh, initially, but um, uh, so I got Larry Ravine, who had become a good friend because he, you know, shot things for us. He was a good sport, so it was Lem, myself, and Larry Ravine, who shot an awful lot of the X stuff that Chuck Vincent did and that uh, Lem and I did, and he's in Blonde Ambition, actually, playing two little bits. (laughs) He's the drummer in the beginning, I think he's the cameraman there. I mean, you know, taking snapshots or some such thing. But anyway, but the uh, and the uh, Francis uh, films were a wonder because the guy that uh, was backing them, I said, "So, what do you think of this?" And then I'd give him, you know, the, the one page, you know, synopsis of the, of the plot, and he'd say, "Oh, yeah, okay, that that's fine, uh, you know, whatever." And I would say to Mike, oh, God, you know, he's going to hate this. And then uh, six months later, because he'd obviously done okay with it, he'd say, uh, how about making another one for me? You know? And, uh, you know, he never wanted to know, you know, I'd cast them and uh, you know, sometimes good, sometimes bad. And then we'd come up with these crazy ideas just to get outside, like like doing a sex scene in a helicopter flying over the Empire State Building or during a sex scene, uh, and, you know, at the top of the uh, Statue of Liberty on the pedestal uh, going around there. Larry Ravine said, he said, John, you have defiled every monument in New York City, which I always loved. <laughs> John, thank you so much for your time. It was truly a pleasure. Thank you for your interest. Thank you for your uh, interest in the book. I was worried. I'm pleased I was told that it did quite well in uh, England also. Perhaps it was the title, American Ecstasy, because, but it's not really that kind of a book. I tried to keep it as R-rated as I could, uh, you know, and uh, I, I, I really did, you know. I'm still the old conservative New England there were people here in New York and filmmakers back then that said, oh, the Amira brothers, they're such snobs and they're so holier than thou and all this stuff, you know. I said, no, not at all. I said, and I tell people what I'm doing and I don't 
pretend to be something I'm not. But I said, just because we have manners and I don't want to date the people that I'm working with, you know, and, but, and also I guess it's because I tended to see the humor in most of the, uh, the films that I made and I, I didn't take it that seriously. I've talked to most of the X-rated directors over the years and uh, the, I, um, my brother and myself were not in it for the reasons that they seem to get into it. For us, it was just a love of movies and wanting to make movies and uh, wanting to, by trial and error, you know, become decent filmmakers. And granted, we wanted to do it all, but and but we kind of did. <laughs> so yeah, no, I I look back on it as as all good. I really do. You know, I, I I I have no regrets. And with seeing uh, Blonde Ambition again the, the the other day, I still got a kick out of the things that I. I wanted in it, you know, and I, of course I see stuff. I said, Oh, that goes on too long and blah, 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 you know, and I'm happy that, uh, I've heard good things from, uh, people who have uh, read the book and I'm happy that, uh, it went into a second printing, you know, I mean, uh, it was, I was thrilled and really surprised because I expected that uh, they would just release it in uh, paperback, you know, and that would have been fine. But when he said that, that they were going to uh, do the first printing uh, hardcover, I said, wow. So, uh, you know, and I'm still I'm still trying to get it's very hard to get press. You know, we, we have no press agent or anything like that. We have no publicist, but it's good because I have the time and I can, uh, you know, I can get on my computer and uh, try to get more uh, reviews. And people like yourself, of course, are just great. I mean, you know, I'm so grateful uh, for your interest. So, uh, you know, I hope it I hope it goes real well for you. And uh, again, thank you so much. All right, we are back and we're talking about blonde ambition. And obviously, April, you had a hand in the making of American Ecstasy, my 30 year search for a happy ending. And I know, Heather, you and I talked a little bit about John's book, and I think you described it the best, which is how'd you say it? It feels like a friend just kind of telling you stories. And that's really how that book reads. And just, I could not put it down. It was wonderful. That was so great to hear. That book was a, a bit of a labor of love. You know, the way we did it was we would just go to John's house or apartment, which is the same apartment you see in many of his films, probably painted in different colors on the walls as they try to make it look like different sets. And, you know, we would just take a portion of John's life and John would just talk, talk, talk about it. And I would ask him questions, record them, and then take them back. And I really tried to write it up in a way that was as close to John's voice, you know, just get out of the way and let it feel like you get to know John. You know, I think even in the beginning, we were thinking like, oh, we'll take it to some publishers. And, you know, we went to a few to see if they would take it out. And they were like, well, you have to put in some social commentary about what it means and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, 
Heck no. None of that is John. John is so what you see is what you get. The beauty of John Amiro is that, you know, he's a film guy who wanted to make films, who went and made films, and he has tons of great stories about what it was like to be a young gay guy from Gloucester, Massachusetts, coming to the city and trying to make a way for himself with some of the greats like Michael Finley, who was his best friend, which by the way, it was right before Blonde Ambition that Michael had been killed. And Michael was John's best friend. And John was recovering from the loss of that friendship. And, you know, I think this was such a perfect distraction in my mind, in a way, you know, trying to kind of walk into the light, <laughs> you know, and, and get away from it, because he really was so crushed by that. But, you know, so you'll get some of that emotional sort of wrangling in the book. But this book is, you know, a labor of love. And we sold out the first print run, which is great. We did it with Fab Press, you know, who are amazing. And you can get it right now. Uh, you know, you can just Google it, go to Fab Press, you can find it on the Rialto Report website or at any of the sites out there. And I really hope people will read it because you're going to get a very unique view of like a place in time in a very honest way. You know, I guess, well, I should ask you guys, because I'm very biased, obviously, you as readers, you know, like, I think it's informative about a place in time. Did you find that yourselves? Absolutely. The fact that we have this book to me feels like such a gift, because not just for anybody who's a fan of John's work, you know, and Lim's work, but also just because... This is a part uh, of time and cinema that we don't have a lot of documentation about from people who were involved with it, especially if you're talking like 60s sexploitation. A lot of those people aren't with us anymore. And, you know, and people, of course, April, I know I'm not telling you anything. You, you have not probably encountered multitudes of times. There's so many pseudonyms and, you know, a lot of people don't want to surface from, you know, being involved. And so it's, it's, it can be a, a, a sticky wicket and, John, like, that book is so great. And it's, and, you know, much like a lot of his movies, it has a lot of heart. It has a lot of wit into it. It is absolutely riveting. Even if you're somebody who's not even into, like, watching, like, say, classic adult films or sexploitation films, like, if you just love cinema and, and just somebody who can tell you a great story who is very real. And April, I love that you, you put it like that because that shines so like sweet and strong. Like it doesn't feel, cause sometimes you'll read a biography and you can, you feel like the, somebody's voice is being a little compromised, you know? And there is absolutely none of that. It's, it's an essential, essential book in my opinion. So not only are you getting, that adult world and especially that adult world over in New York, as opposed to the California side of things. I mean, he eventually does later on some of the gigs like working for Playboy, but that time, that place. And, and also, you know, we brought this up before him being a gay man and coming to terms with his own sexuality, his brother's sexuality that he doesn't know that his brother's gay. And then he finds out and it's just, it's amazing. It's such a compelling story, but it's that. It's a man's real life. And to read that and just to your point, how matter of fact he is. And he's just like, well, yeah, this happened. Then this happened. It just, it, it doesn't have that, like you said, unnecessary social commentary because just his life is enough to be like, well, it was very difficult to be this way at this time. You know, people weren't just out and ready. And I just, 
love that, uh, you know, who can handle that the way that his folks or his grandmother was. A lot of times with biographies, I hate the opening part where it's just like, okay, well, my mother was this, my father was that, and, you know, like tracing back to like the freaking Mayflower and whatever, who gives a shit? But like the, his early days are as compelling as his later days, which is, says a lot for me because so many times in biographies, I'm just like, cut the shit. Let's get to like when you first start working. But this was great to read the entire thing. And like I said, I couldn't put it down. It was just one of those books where you're just like, well, what happened next? And what happened next? And even when I knew some of the twists and turns that were going to be coming, just because being a fan of the films, I was like, I can't wait to read the behind the scenes stories about this. We are so lucky to have John around and that we had John tell his story because let's, you know, even though his is not a tortured story of coming out, you know, he's been pretty comfortable with his sexuality, which is a miracle, you know, kind of thinking about where he comes from and everything. So many of these people are gone, you know, Lem, Chuck, Wade, you know, Chris Cavino, you know, AIDS decimated the community that uh, John was in. And if it wasn't AIDS, you know, Chuck, his longtime partner died of complications from alcohol use, you know, many of these people are not around. So it's sort of amazing to have somebody tell you about 60s and 70s New York and filmmaking. And like, I really... I, I'm so glad to hear you say, Heather, like, I don't think you need to be an adult film fan to appreciate that because it really is much more about like, how does a young filmmaker in these early days of the industry just sort of make it work? And the sex, like in an Amiro production is sort of incidental and not the main plot of the thing. So you really get a sense of what New York felt like, what, you know, being a gay man in New York in the 60s and 70s was like. And never mind the fact that there's a lot of these salacious little side stories of like Anthony Perkins and Montgomery Clift and all these people that are shoved in there too, which are just little, little sweet extras in the thing. But it's, you know, that book is, it's a love letter to cinema. It's a love letter to Lem, you know, John's brother, who he, you know, really was his best, best friend and he misses terribly, you know, and it's a love letter to Chuck, his partner that he lost and a love letter to his friends, you know, many of whom are gone. And so I just feel really grateful that John was able to get that out into the world and share it with all of us. I just wanted to just thank you, April, for your work on that. And also, I I love the fact that the very first, like when the Rialto Report emerged, and the very first episode, like the podcast was John yeah. talking about Body of the Female. And I just That's remember, right. and this is before, like, you know, I knew you guys. And I was just like, Oh, my God, who are these people? They are amazing. And, and you know, because just trying to find him, like, information especially like reliable information you know on john or especially like michael finlay was like is like almost like hen's teeth you know so thank you guys so much for just all that and thanks and and you know god bless john amaro i love i love his films and after like hearing you know him interviewed and, and reading his book i love him and i just we are so so lucky to have him so i'm curious next week we're going to be talking about new wave hookers which I can't really call it a musical, though music plays such an important part in that movie. Last week, when we talked about Little Orphan Dusty, or two weeks ago, Heather, when we talked about Teenage Cruisers. I mean, music is such an integral part to that. Are there other really good musical adult films? I can only think of a handful, like maybe Cafe Flesh or the first nudie musical, which, again, is not necessarily 
porn or the Alice in Wonderland one I thought was fantastic. And I, I love when these films branch out and they, you know, they play with genre. And I love that this film plays with genre so much, but I'm curious as far as like, I'm, I can't say I'm any sort of expert, but are there other musical themed adult films that you guys know of or recommend? I think you just sort of encapsulated the, the oeuvre, the, the, the entirety of it. And I'm so glad that you brought up Alice in Wonderland. You know, we did a deep dive of that on, on our site as well. And, you know, it's like, I think about that in my mind. That came out, uh, that was released in 76. So just when pre-production was starting for Blonde. And that was like a huge production. You know, the initial budget was like $100,000 and it grew up to like $350,000. So we're talking 10 times what, you know, the blonde ambition budget was. And, you know, it was incredibly successful. I really, not to try to drive traffic to our side, but I really encourage people to read the background of it because it's so fascinating to see how people were thinking about film and conversions of different genres at the time and how to cross lines with mainstream and take advantage of that. And then, of course, underneath it all, because there's money, there's going to be pilfering. So the film producer, you know, Bill Osco, basically all the profits uh, got siphoned off by Bill. But like to me, John was not sitting around saying, Ooh, look, Alice in Wonderland, we're going to make a, you know, a musical. You know, this was born out of John's love for musicals. He probably had no idea Alice in Wonderland was out there yet at the time. There is something about trying to build up this, you know, subgenre of work and stuff that uh, is a very interesting, you know, sort of like, where's the point where people say, Hey guys, can we get back to the sex? I don't know if you would call it a musical, but I know like with Susie Superstar, there are a number of songs. Um, now it's not Shauna Grant singing, but I think Sharon Mitchell is actually singing in that. I have to revisit it. It's been years. Oh no, now I'm confused. Is it Susie Superstar or is it Up and Coming that has Sharon Mitchell yes. as a country star? Is it Up well, and Susie Coming? Susie Superstar is Shauna Grant, you know, has that singer. Yeah. He's involved in the mob. And the- <laughs> yeah, but Sharon's in that. Sharon's definitely in, in that. I'd have to look it up. But yeah, I think you're right. What a great world we live in. Like, I was just like, Sharon Mitchell as a country and Western singer? Yes, please. Like, you know, it hits me. Like, I've never thought of Cafe Flesh as a musical, which might sound curious because it's obviously like music is a, a huge thread in it. But I think it's the way the music is integrated. Like, it's like the way the way that like Steven Sadian uses it. It's like, because Steven's like such a visual and out of the box creator that it's like every element is like a layer Inter- you know, interwoven. It's like, you know, it's a, a surrealist out of the box basket of, you know, post nuke <laughs> art. But that's curious. I, I, I wouldn't say, I guess technically you could say, I mean, it, I always felt like it has sort of a weird sort of uh, family tree tied to cabaret, which is obviously very much a musical. That's interesting. I've never thought of Cafe Flesh as a musical. The soundtrack is amazing, though. The Mitchell Froom. Uh, work on that is is so striking and just so perfect for that movie. Well, I mean, I guess you could say some of if I'm stretching it, some of the Michael Nin stuff like uh, Cashmere, where you've got almost those like David Lynch type scenes of old songs being mixed with new visuals. And um, I want to say there's 
I'm trying to remember what one of the big set pieces in the, is in there, but there's a lot of like lip syncing of old songs. I think even the opening credits have like the main actress with like beehive hairdos and her, you know, how Michael Nin will take a person and kind of replicate them. So she's her own backup singers. I want to say it's been a little while that that's one of those. Like if I, by the way, if I could ever get Michael Nin on this show, that would be wonderful. <laughs> I love his shit. And it's just like, come on, man. Let, let's, let's talk about latex, talk about shocks. Like some of these movies are freaking fantastic, but there's not a whole lot. Like while I was doing a, a look around, there's of course like parodies of Rocky Horror, parodies of Greece. The only other thing that was coming up really was like, Chorus Girl from 79. Um, I can't remember if you just mentioned Up and Coming from 82, mm-hmm. but not a whole lot of other musicals, unfortunately, but it kind of seems like it should be. I think I want to say when we were doing an episode on, um, uh, Misty Beethoven that there was a musical version of that, which I don't remember being very good. Oh, my, that was our first episode together. Aww. <laughs> Aww, you <laughs> too. Was, I know, isn't it? Gosh, that feels so long ago. Um, no, you just, you, you spurred my mind though, because, um, I wouldn't call the whole film a musical, but Harry Novak produced a film called Roseland. It's softcore, but there is an amazing musical number with a song called You Can't Fart Around With Love. (laughs) It has totally got that kind of just irreverent sort of counterculture, underground college magazine sort of humor about it. You can actually see the song in its entirety on YouTube, and I highly, highly recommend that. You mentioned Rocky Horror. Yeah, wasn't there like the Rocky Horror porno yeah w-h-o-r-e rocky horror i think it was yeah but uh but the only reason i've never i've only seen clips of that mistress tantella who's in that plays moms in cafe flesh oh nice it's such an interesting moment in time like mike when i think about like why aren't there more you know it feels like there was just this you know few year period where you know from like the mid like the early to mid 70s to like the early 80s where it's like let's see what we can do with the genre let's see how we can push the edges of the adult genre because most of us are a bunch of us are filmmakers wanting to get to where we want to get to and this is just incidental and so you had this moment in time and then all of a sudden you know you start deconstructing and get getting back to you know a world of clips born out of video and then you know digital obviously it doesn't surprise me that there aren't more because you know i guess it begs the question of like what do you watch these movies for right so it's like what do you watch a film like blonde ambition for you know it's like if you think of like hey i'm in the mood for a for a mystery tonight hey i want a horror film hey i want a hardcore sex musical you know it's like how many people are gonna just be like i'm in the mood for just that it is a it is a a little bit of a mind-bending sell that this did have the R-rated version. I didn't see the R-rated version. I don't know if that's if you can get your hands on it, but the softcore version, softcore isn't that soft, I have to say. Like I was watching, I was doing one of those things where I had the the main TV playing the full X-rated version and then on my laptop I was watching the softcore version which is available on that amazing two DVD disc set that's out there. This is all lined up. You know, there's nothing really missing from the film in fact on the softcore version at one point there's like a i think it's during one of the the cum shots on the the 
the X-rated version, the screen just goes to pink. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> like I was mostly watching, especially during the whole Gone with the Wind scene and just like, how the hell are they going to cut around this? And it was amazing to see, like they would just, you know, use different insert shots and stuff. And I'm like, okay, well, this, this is kind of interesting, but there was more sex in the soft core version than I thought there was going to be. And I'd be very curious to see the R-rated version because I think you could cut around the sex in this movie so much because there isn't that much of it. I mean, there's definitely a lot, but there's not that much. And really, to your point, so much of this movie I'm watching, not for the sex, but for the story. And I was really enjoying the story of this. Reading it for the articles, like I'm fascinated through the sex scenes for the acting scenes. How often do you do that? But it's true. It's like, get me to the next pun. You know, I think that's how they kept us watching the sex scene on this one. They're like, we'll intercut it with some puns. That'll make them watch the hardcore scenes. It's just a lot of fun. If you like Deep Throat and Singing in the Rain, you're going (laughs) to love Blonde Ambition. You got to watch it. It's so much fun. Just like have your friends over and giggle. We started this whole month off talking about memories within Miss Aggie, and that movie is easy to find. But I have to say, Blonde Ambition is even easier. And the restored version is freaking phenomenal. It looks so good. I've actually I, – I bought this movie twice. I have the single DVD, like VCA-type edition, and then this – new-ish one. I can't remember when the the restored version came out, but it looks so damn good. And it's easy, very easy to get your hands on this. It isn't like, you know, we talked about Little Orphan Dusty or Teenage Cruisers. I mean, we talked, you know, Heather, this whole thing of like how tough it is to get your hands on Teenage Cruisers, even New Wave Hookers. Like you can see a version of that, but we'll talk about that story next week. This one is the easiest of all the movies we've talked about this month. This is the easiest to get your hands on, and you really need to get your hands on it and get those eyeballs on Blonde Ambition. There's no excuse, people. Come on, like that's uh, and, and you know, it's it's a great antidote if you're having, especially if you're having a a rough week or just you know, obviously like real life and and the world will definitely weigh you down. And there's some like heavy stuff. Sometimes you just you need to do some self care and watch a really funny, beautifully made movie. And I can't think of a finer one than Blonde Ambition. And you got to throw in a copy of John's book while you're at it. American Ecstasy, my 30-year search for a happy ending. People, you got to read it. It's so fun, too. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Never wonder what it's like to be a pimp, man. A pimp. It's got to be trouble. All them different chicks calling you up at all hours. <laughs> Now what the hell does that new wave music got that black music doesn't have? 
You know what I think? I think these bitches be from another planet and that that new wave music is like they sex drugs. Lucky for them that I am the genius that I am. I figured out a way to program bitches to music and that's the new way to catch. Hey, baby. You looking fine today, mama. How'd you like to listen to some music? What kind? Bend over. That's right, we'll be back next week with a look at New Wave Hookers to wrap up our selection of adult coverage for the year. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, April and Heather. So, Heather, what is going on with you? I recently wrote an article about the great, late Vern Langdon. And Vern Langdon worked for Don Post Studios as a monster mask maker. He was also a professional magician, a circus clown, a professional wrestler, (laughs) an organist. I mean, he did makeup for the gong show. Vern Langdon, he could also make one hell of a tiki drink. Just the uncle we would all want to have. And I did a little tribute for him that you can currently read and this month's issue of Rue Morgue magazine. So I, it was a labor of love. And uh, if you, if that sounds like anybody's uh, cup of tea, please seek it out. And of course, you can always keep up with me at my website, mondoheather.com and over at Twitter and Instagram under at Mondo Heather. And there's some wonderful uh, newsletter that you've got. There's the Mondo Heather Patreon, which I subscribe to. So there are so many ways to keep up with Heather. Definitely, folks, if you like Heather Drain as much as I like Heather Drain, though I don't know if anybody can like you as much as I do, Heather. Oh, me, got me, to, me. Aww, oh, big love fest. Yay. I love you both. <laughs> you have to sign up for the Mondo Heather Patreon. You must do that. Save your soul, folks. And April, what is the latest with you? Obviously, we have John Amira's book out, and we've talked about that. I'm going to keep plugging that because it's so wonderful. And then we have our new content up every Sunday at therealtoreport.com. We're doing a lot of focusing right now. It's Believe it or not, it's the 50th anniversary of Deep Throat. Geez, time flies. And so we already had a bunch of great stuff about that on our website. We have a bunch of new stuff coming out now um, that we'll be releasing over the next few months. And we're working on a variety of TV and film projects. The most recent one that got released was Crime Scene, The Times Square Killer. That was on Netflix. We were consulting producers for that show. But we have a bunch of others in the works. So stay tuned to our site or our social media accounts under the Rialto Report to follow us. And we uh, are so grateful to be here. Ashley and I love coming on the projection booth. It's an inspiration for us, Mike, for the Rialto Report. So it feels extra special. Oh, shucks. I am blushing over here. Oh, man. If if I may interject, anybody listening, please, the Rialto Report is doing the Lord's work. <laughs> just, I mean, seriously, just the, the level of heart and research and great writing and care. And it's, it's absolutely some of the best you're going to find out there. And I highly, everybody go to it. And also that once upon a time in the Valley podcast yes. that you guys, that the Rialto worked with was brilliant and especially i know i know you guys will be talking about tracy lord soon enough mike yeah next <laughs> uh, week's gonna be a big week yeah oh yeah uh, so definitely just everybody if you if you love film history if you love human history and if you just love great work go to the rialto report 
Okay, now I'm blushing. Well, thank you so much, ladies, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. To inquire about advertising on the Projection Booth, email sales at advertisecast.com. I kind of wish they had a better website that rolled off the tongue a little bit more. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. But the gentleman friends who used to call, they never did seem to mind at all. They came to the wrong side of the tracks. Then someone broke my heart in Little Rock. So I up and left the pieces there. Like a little lost lamb I roamed about I came to New York and I found out That men are the same way everywhere I was young and determined to be wine and dine and ermine And I worked at it all around the clock Now one of these days in my fancy clothes I'm a-going back home and punch the nose Of the one who broke my heart The one who broke my heart The one who broke my heart In Little Rock, Little Rock, Little Rock Little Rock I'm just a little girl from Little Rock A horse used to be my closest pal Though I never did learn to read or write I learned about love in the pale moonlight And now I'm an educated gal I learned an awful lot in Little Rock And here's some advice I'd like to share Find a gentleman who is shy or bold Or short or tall or young or old As long as the guy's a millionaire For a kid from a small street I did very well on Wall Street Though I never owned a share of stock And now that I'm known in the biggest banks I'm going back home and give my thanks To the one who broke my heart The one who broke my heart The one who broke my heart